Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, February 13, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev Radio. Good morning. Much more energetic this morning, much more in the routine uh, this morning. Did not watch a action-packed day of sports as I did Sunday. Stayed up later than I should have. You had the, the really the doubleheader of all doubleheaders. And it's hard to consider which is the most important of the two sporting events, Josh. In your world, neither mattered. I get that. But, I mean, if you're a sports fan and you've got this decision to make about about when to go to the grocery store, when to get your snacks, when to get your, you know, the food that you're preparing, when to have your guest over, do you do it for the Super Bowl or do you do it for the UConn Lady Gamecock women's basketball game? And I think that, I don't know, that the weight of that decision Josh probably impaired my ability to be on top of my game yesterday. Not the sports itself, but the sports itself speaks for itself. But the monumental weight required to make a a decision as important to that. Forget immunity. Forget Sarbanes Oxley. Forget some of the Jack Smith accusations and trials. Forget the debate, um, rather extended debate yesterday that Jeff and I had about who's older and less wise, um, deciding between the Super Bowl and women's basketball <laughs> is quite the burden. Yeah. And uh, and it took me a day to kind of um endure and now you're the consequence. Yeah, I'm I'm back at yeah. it and uh, I'm and, with and you. good to go. Uh I, I I stand by the comments. I've never I don't know the last time that I was not watching a Super Bowl, uh, but rather out and about. And I'm telling you, Ray, when I left my home at halftime of the Super Bowl, it was eerie. I mean, that's the only word I can come up. It was eerie. It was, what, 8.15, 8.20, and there was nobody out. I mean, it was Chernobyl during COVID <laughs> is what I said yesterday, and I stand by it. Um, you don't believe the NFL is a juggernaut. It's a juggernaut. <laughs> yeah. no, no question about it. It, it rules. It, is, um, it rules. I mean, there is no doubt about it. And it understands it's not just in the football business, but rather the entertainment business. I don't know if you saw this or not. In the end zone of the stadium, there were these booths, and it looked like kind of these um, U-shaped, you know, whole six or eight people, and it was literally on the field at the Super Bowl, and I mean, it was you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars per booth for the game. Oh wow! Corporate travel. I didn't see that. Uh, I did see where Floyd Mayweather spent more at the Super Bowl than anybody he recorded. I don't have any idea about betting and whatnot, but I think Mayweather spent. Three million dot three million one hundred forty eight thousand for a box. <laughs> okay, but he said he had you know thirty of his buddies, and um, so they went to the Super Bowl. Spent. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the National Football. I've said before, and and I you say certain things, and you're like, wow, okay, the, is that political? Is that societal? Is that cultural? Um, do you believe Walt Disney beat Dis- built Disney World for? high earners i mean i don't no that was it was the super bowl intended to be attended by nothing but high earners i mean all of these things have morphed into i don't know, just something that the working class can't consider um how many americans today could honestly consider going to the super bowl i mean i don't know what a ticket to the super bowl is i know they have lotteries i guess you could win you know, uh, you could buy two tickets at quote unquote sticker price by winning a lottery. But I mean, if you go aftermarket, in other words, if they disperse the tickets to whom gets the tickets 
and you got corporate sponsors and you've got, I, I don't know, family and friends of players and athletes. And I would imagine there's some preference given to the host city. I mean, I'd like to believe that. I'd like to believe that if you're a resident of Las Vegas, if you pull for the Las Vegas Raiders season ticket holders, I mean, there's a chance you kind of get on the good list and you're allowed to go to the um, to the Super Bowl. Um, you ever gone to the Super Bowl? No. You ever thought about it? No. I mean, is that a bucket list kind of thing or not really? It's not. What What is a bucket list kind of thing? Josh, uh-huh. since you don't care that much <laughs> for sports, what is a, while Riff's thinking about it, yeah. what is a bucket list thing for you? I mean, mine would be Lambeau Field. I would say the Boston Garden, but they've torn it down. Um, Happy Valley in uh, Penn State. I mean, you know, so, some of the places that I grew up kind of respecting, admiring. Um, I'd love to go to a football game in Lincoln, Nebraska. I don't know why. I mean, I don't have any idea except Nebraska was really, really good when I was a kid. And Lincoln, Nebraska, to me, I mean, as a kid, it's like going to the moon. I mean, you just you kind of like you settle early. I'll never go to Lincoln, Nebraska. I mean, I may get to Columbia one day. I remember the first time I went to Clemson. You know, my beloved Gamecocks playing a road game, and I'm here. I mean, it was like, wow, who do you think you are? <laughs> Traveling all the way to the ends of our state. <laughs> Forget the ends of the world or ends of the nation. I'm talking about the ends of our state. But I remember thinking about, you know, I actually had a, a good Clemson friend. Well, let me back up. My dad had a good Clemson friend, and for whatever reason, they knew I loved Gamecock football and invited me to go along. And they were a Clemson family. But I was 12, 13-ish, somewhere thereabout. And I can remember, I mean, a month before the game, they invited me. Hey, wonder if Ken wants to go with us to the game. And I mean, I know he loves the game, Cost, but wonder if he wants to go with us to Clemson. And I'm like, I, I can't. I mean, I don't think I can get there from here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, don't have, I don't have a space suit. I don't have, I mean, it's just when you're young, I don't think Josh can relate to that, Rev. When you're young, the world is so ah, disconnected. I mean, it, it was just crazy. We had to listen to music when they said listen to music. Um, we read about places in the Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, that's what I knew yeah. about the world. I, I mean, there was no internet. There was no you had to wait um, for your, 24-7 news. Wait for your TV show to come on yeah. TV and sit and down. You waited oh, all week. Yeah, 8 o'clock uh, on Friday night or whatever. Oh, 8 o'clock on Monday night, Gunsmoke. Oh, there you go. Jiffy Pop Popcorn. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say Saturday night, The Love Boat. Ah. And, and Fantasy, and fantasy The Blang, The Blang. <laughs> remember that? Of course. Yeah, Tattoo and Mr. Rock. But I, mean, I remember, like, thinking about, wow, I'm going all the way to Clemson. I mean, these pe- people have been kind enough to invite me along. Um, there was beauty in that. I think young people miss out because everything is so available and ready for them. Um I mean, I've already tweeted this morning. I mean, imagine that. Imagine somebody sits down behind a desk or a microphone at 5 o'clock in the morning, got something on his mind. I get here, I'm riding over, and I hear the story about the Senate stayed all night to vote on curbing inflation, nah, <laughs> um, border security, security nah, yeah, um, right. dealing with the issues and problems of the American working class, nah, um, the $60 worth of groceries that now cost you 100 bucks, nah, um, can we or can we not fund a war in Ukraine? I mean, that's how the Senate rolls. Um, so the way you get the U.S. Senate to go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning is debate spending money to fund foreign countries and their foreign entanglements that Jefferson, Washington, Adams so prophetically warned us of. Josh, back to the bucket list. Is there any, I mean, g- give me your two or three bucket list items 
two or three. Yeah. Um, is, is there anything out there that, that I, you could call? Yeah, that's kind of been, I, I've said Lambeau is on my bucket list. Um, Lincoln, Nebraska. I'll probably never do this because I'm the world's worst about, hey, one of these days I'm doing this and I go to Litchfield. One of these days I'm doing that <laughs> and I go to Gamecock Park. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and the older I get, the more inclined I am to say, nah, I mean, I saw it on the internet. <laughs> I had a sense of what it was like to sit in, in Lambeau. Uh, and I want to go to Lambeau when it's cold. I don't want to go to Lambeau. It's 20 degrees below zero. The wind blowing. But I want to go to Lambeau. I don't want to be 75 if I ever get a chance to go to Lambeau. And Lincoln, Nebraska's intrigue is as a kid, I mean, they were the Alabama of today. I mean, Nebraska kicked everybody's butt in football back in the day. But Josh, to you, you're not a big sports fan. No. So, so what would be a bucket list? So I was thinking about it, and I'd probably have to say my top three would be from attainability to least attainable. It would be go skiing out west, okay. snow skiing, um, get my pilot's license. Oh, okay. And this one is a lot harder to attain, but have some kind of strange story, like see a UFO or see some kind of creature or something like that. See the lizard man. I guess that's a big one down here. Have an here. encounter with Bigfoot. Yeah, I don't believe in Bigfoot though, but uh, something like a angel, a demon, or a, or a UFO, whatever it is. I think he believes something in like that. That's kind of what he said yeah, without is. saying yeah. it. So lizards, man, real Bigfoot's not. Yeah, no. Liz- well, they might be in 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 some way or fashion. Maybe not a link between man and ape walking around, but so, some okay. kind of entity. Let's start a conspiracy theory this morning. What is the most? What is the monster least hard to believe in? Bigfoot for me. Okay, least hard. Well, uh, of of the main what ones, what is the I'm most sure unlikely the, monster to really exist? The Loch Ness, Bigfoot, Lizard Man. Is it Bigfoot? I think Bigfoot because the the idea that there is some kind of giant gorilla man walking around and no one has been able to to find its bones or anything like that. That seems hard to believe. With I, lo- same with Loch Ness, but you could argue, oh, it's a deep lake. There's underwater caves. Maybe a dinosaur could have survived down there that long. But with the Bigfoot, I mean, the woods aren't that crazy. What if Bigfoot? You, know? you ever thought of this? What if Bigfoot is really blurry? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, what, what if his natural state he, is he just blurry? Might be blurry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's, right. he's, he's not. Because every picture. Every picture. Even though we blurred. have technology, fantastic. But I mean, if we HD got all cameras these pictures and of Bigfoot yeah. and they're all blurry, yep. shouldn't we conclude that Bigfoot may just naturally be blurry? I think that's reasonable. I mean, he's in a blurry state of existence is what I think. <laughs> um, he's an interdimensional traveler. Well, he is. And, and he never dies because there is no remnants of his death is what you're oh. talking about. I mean, there, there's no... At the Smithsonian Institute, they have basically found enough bone of some of these prehistoric dinosaurs to put back together and give some, you know, I don't know, some rendering of what they look like or what they look like at some point in time. Um, Josh, why pilot license? So to me, the pilot's license thing is, I think it's amazing that we have, we as human beings have developed the technology to fly and almost nobody ever does it. So, like, ideally, I'd like to get a pilot's license and have one of those tiny kind of Cessna planes and 
be able to fly around whenever land, I wanted. That land in pine thickets uh, on, on, on occasions. That's true. Uh, Rev, when did you get your pilot? What, what led you down the road to getting your pilot license? Uh, I never got my private license, but I I went through training twice. Well, why? Uh, I, I was just interested, and it was 1990 when I first started. About the time Top Gun came out. Yeah, maybe that was it. That was it. But I, I just had an interest in it. Uh, didn't have any money, and it was expensive. Uh, I remember my dad paid a little bit so I could go out there and try. Um, I did a introductory lesson. I liked it. So I, I got about 30, more than 30 hours, um, as in my pilot training, I've soloed, um, I've done some, what they call cross country flying, you know, to, uh, faraway airports. Uh, but I just never did take the test and get my license. Did you know that Josh? Um, did you know that Rev had extensive experience flying I mean, it, to me, he's a he's a he's a fighter pilot. I mean, you know, that's what I heard. I do remember. I of course remember the story where he flew in a jet plane. Um, oh, that was, yeah, that's he, different. That that was the Thunderbirds. I do remember. Like, I completely forgot that, but I remember now on the day of my first interview, where actually the first day I met you, you mentioned that you were like trying to get life insurance, but they were like, "Are you a pilot?" And you're like, "Well, kinda." And they're like, "Well, then no." So you had to. Well, I mean, I, stop. I, I'm sure within the first five minutes of your meeting one another, he told you about flying with the um, with the Thunderbirds, right? Maybe the picture on the wall gave it away. <laughs> yeah, I think that was it. <laughs> that, 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 that 20 by 80 picture <laughs> that he has plastered on the wall of him puking in his helmet when they go to like Mach 3 or whatever it is, and the G4s <laughs> blows the top of your head off and, and makes you unconscious. And we you didn't go to Mach 3, by the way. I'm yeah. sure we didn't break the sound barrier, but uh, I did pull 9Gs. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. That's enough to throw up in a helmet, <laughs> yeah. rest assured. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, I wanted to ask you, Ken, a minute, uh, in a minute about your bucket list, but uh, I love it when you bring up topics like this. It brings back memories. I, I have a, uh, a more, just one on my bucket list I'll share with you. I, I For whatever reason, I've always wanted to start on US-1, and I think it runs from Maine to Miami, Florida, and I just wanted to travel all the way up to Maine, all the way back down to, to Miami and back home, take my time, just stop at little towns, along the way but not being in any big hurry but that's just one on mine but i wanted to ask you whatever happened to your bucket on your bucket list about mount everest have you given up on that and i'll take it out there thank you bobby appreciate <laughs> that rev and i were just talking about it a second ago i got infatuated with fitness about seven or eight years i mean i started working out when my dad died in 04 i mean i'd, I'd played football and baseball and basketball and and tennis i'd always played a lot of sports growing up and then I got into slow pitch softball. I had a cup of coffee at Walford, a summer and a semester, I like to say. Um, two cups of coffee. Uh, one that summer, one that semester. And my dad was so wise and knew me so well. Uh, when I had an opportunity, I had an opportunity to go play football. My dad said, um, uh, what a scholarship. That's back when they gave you pieces of money. You know, you had a little bit here and a little bit there. My, my high school football coach played offensive line at Walford, and he sent some of the more friendly film on me he could find. Uh, it was hard, but he found some friendly film of mine and some coaches were there that he had some relationships with. And I went and I screwed around. I mean, I didn't take it serious at all. And I mean, I wish I had, but anyway, um, I'd always stayed in decent shape because of the athletics, because of the, the sports. Um, I came home and went to work in the family business 
and I started playing slow pitch softball. Now, for those who have played a lot of tournament softball, it's really, to be honest with you, there are two people who play. They're the young bucks who haven't gotten married yet, and I mean, they want to be the best they can be. And then there are the married folk who want a reason to get away from home for a weekend and drink a bunch of beer. That's kind of the way it rolled where I was. So we had about five or six young guys, and I would have been a young one to begin with, and then I get married, and you're looking for a reason to kind of um, hang out with the fellas. So slow-pitch softball became a very competitive and social-oriented event. I mean, it was very social, but I'm going to level with you. We had about everybody on our team had an opportunity to play college sports of some kind, football, baseball, basketball. Uh, a couple of guys got drafted. And we all kind of, you know, landed back in the same area. It didn't work out. That's a friendly way of saying it didn't work out. None of us got drafted. None of us made a lot of money in sports. So we, we congregated, and we had a pretty good slow-pitch softball team. Um, and it was kind of interesting. It was some I grew up with, some I didn't grow up with. But, but those of us who had a chance to play sports gravitated um, toward one another. Um, that kind of ran its run probably longer um, than my wife was was happy with but anyway um so then i go in in the business and i'm not i mean i'm, I'm doing manual labor i mean the the manufacturing part of our business was very labor intensive i mean it's it's cutting metal it's welding and torching and i mean it's 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 hard on the body but good for the body um i sold that business in 2008 but my dad died in 04 and and i've told this story i think before on the radio rev I was about 235 pounds. I mean, I'd stopped playing softball, got married, trying to raise a, a family, doing the best I could. And I normally weighed 205, 210, somewhere there. And I got up to about, that's why I like to say, if you're not careful, 205 turns into 210. Two turns, 210 turns into 215, 15 into 20, 20 into 25, 25 into 30. And you go buy yourself a pair of steel-toed work boots from Schofield one day. And when you lean down to zip them, this pair particularly had a zipper in the back. And I remember, I don't know why I liked them. They were easy to get on. You zipped them in the back. I stood up. I was lightheaded. I said, damn, I'm about to pass out. You know, just from leaning down, zipping up a pair of a pair of work boots. And it, that would have been in 04, shortly after my dad passed away. And I started going to the gym. Well, when I started going to the gym, I got obsessed with fitness. Uh, I mean, that just seems to be my personality. Rez's been with me long enough. I mean, I don't dabble. I kind of go all in, whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And I started hearing about the extreme test of man is climbing Mount Everest. I mean, it's, it's the mind over matter. It's the physical, um, it's, it's cardio, it's strength. It's everything you could imagine. And if you want to be considered elite in your athletic endeavors, I mean, you can't get drafted by the NFL. The NBA wasn't knocking on my door. Major league baseball didn't have my phone number. So I'm thinking about how can I motivate myself to be as fit as I possibly can, and Mount Everest. And and I started watching videos. I started reading about it. I mean, I, I think we had a, a, a bit on the show about green boots, you know, one of the world-class climbers who died. Uh, I think there are over 300 dead people at the top of Mount Everest. The majority of those on top of Mount Everest were accomplished climbers who made a bad weather decision. I mean, in all honesty, that's what it comes down. That's not all it comes down to. Rest assured, you don't roll out of the drive-thru at a local slop bucket and decide to climb Mount Everest. There's a lot of prep that goes into it, but it's weather. It's all about the weather, the predictability or not of the weather. So I became real about six years ago. I said, okay, 
I told the trainer, I said, look, I want to train as if I'm climbing, climbing Mount Everest. And I started reading about it. I actually sent out an application to the Nepal government. Um, they sent applications back. I mean, that's the, the economy of that part of the world is based on that mountain. I mean, how many Westerners come to climb um, that mountain? Called a guy that from New Zealand that runs a one of these um, expedition teams who has never lost a Westerner on Mount Everest. That was a big deal to me. Um, <laughs> but I've got some life insurance. And Rev was talking about this a second ago, um, or Josh was talking about life insurance mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, and the life insurance company asked, are you interested in extreme sports? No. Skydiving. I mean, I, I've done it once, but I'll never do it again. I mean, I did do it once, never do it again. What about, um, you know, mountain climbing or something? I said, well, I mean, no, I volunteered. I said, would, would climbing Mount Everest, you know, would that be considered an extreme sport? And the, the nurse <laughs> taking the information said, of course it would. I mean, it would be one of the most extreme things man could possibly do. Um, so I had a debate with the insurance company. Would they pay the death benefit if I died on the top of Mount Everest? They would not. And that gave me an excuse. I mean, that gave me a real good excuse to say, okay, as bad as I wanted to do it and as ready as I was to do it, I can't leave my wife hanging. You know, I can't, I can't leave her. I mean, I'm not sure she would totally oppose me, you know, dying on top of the mountain, but I would. I, I want to come back and go to Gamecock Park and, and Litchfield was kind of the limitations yeah, you have some of my bucket world. List things. But, but no, Rev knows this. I started really about three years ago. Uh, I, I mean, I'd been training about three or four years as if I were going to climb. And once again, Nepal government, Chinese, I mean, uh, Kathmandu, you know, I'd, I'd done all where the flights come in. I mean, they say something more intimidating than, than climbing Mount Everest is landing and taking off at the airport. But it's like six feet long. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there are like 20 climbers on a plane. There may be a window open. There may not be a window open. But the plane basically runs off the end of the runway and just begins to fall. And, and the lift, you know, starts taking over. But it's, it's uh, anyway, I, I watched all those videos. I was ready to do my thing. Um, and then I watched a video because the majority of videos you watch and the majority of docudramas that you watch, there's a celebratory mood about it. I mean, the, the, the accomplishments of man, look what man can do. And I'm talking about literally, not, not, not figuratively, not literally. I mean, the women have climbed, um, obviously, and, but look at what man can accomplish when they put their minds to it. They train, they work, they diet. They, you know, they train, they work, they diet, they train, they work, they diet. So the majority of what I read and what I saw was a celebration of someone summiting Mount Everest. And then I started watching where they didn't. And there was no euphoric background music. I mean, it was people struggling to breathe. People in better condition than I've ever thought about being were struggling to breathe. And you could hear it. Uh, could you move over? And I'm like, whoa, 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 where's the music? <laughs> you know, where, where, where's, right. the, where, where's the dance? I mean, where, where's holding the flag up over your head? Where's that big game cock, you know, that I'm going to summit Mount Everest <laughs> and say, look, fellow chickens, at what I've done. No, it was none of that. There were two videos that I watched in particular, and I, as I always do, I made Rev watch one with me, and Rev even said, that's pretty intense, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, that's extremely intense. And what it is, the body... I mean, it's oxygen-assisted, but when you get to, to what they call the death zone, which is the last 3,000 feet of summiting Mount Everest, 
there's about 25% of the oxygen available to keep a human being alive. I didn't say 25 less. I said there's 25% of the oxygen available to keep a human being alive. Somebody asked me, why don't they go rescue the, well, I mean, all these rescue efforts they have and all these ski slopes and, and in some of these mountain climbers, why not? Well, I mean, if a helicopter lands at the top of Mount Everest, the air's too thin for it to lift back off. I mean, a helicopter obviously can fly that high, but it can't lift. In other words, if that dead weight sitting on the mountain and you go rescue two or three or four dead people, the air is so thin the helicopter can't lift itself. I'm still training as if I'm climbing Mount Everest. My concern, uh, let me be honest, my excuse is the health insurance. (laughs) I mean, the life insurance. The fact that the life insurance company says that they would exclude any activities like that from uh, from my wife receiving, my family receiving uh, the death benefit. And that's a big deal to me because I got a real tangled up business world. Um, Sometimes there's a lot of debt. Sometimes there's not a lot of debt. Sometimes there's a little bit of money. Sometimes there ain't no money. I mean, that's just the nature of my world. And has I, I been. think it's funny that Bobby noticed you kind of stopped talking about well, it. I, mean, I, I did, I mean, I, but, but I still think about it. I still got the, um, the application. I still got the, um, all the paperwork has been done. I sent some money off to the New Zealand expedition team. I mean, I've vetted, there's about 30 teams that hire these Sherpas and they do their thing. This company was, I, I mean, to me, the best there was. So I sent a little money to get on a list. Because I really and truly thought I wanted to do it. But in the back of my mind, I'm being 100% candid. In the back of my mind, I'm going, you're getting older, dude. I mean, you're getting older. Talk to two people. One who summited. One who didn't. The one who didn't was about my age. And he said, look, as far as I'm concerned, I summited. I mean, he spent he spent two days at advanced base camp. I mean, that's just below the death zone. I think that's 27,000 feet-ish. Um, but, but I mean, I, I know all the terminology. I can talk about it. There, there's a guy at the gym that, that, you know, when you're going, when you're going, when you're going, when you're going, uh, doesn't look like I am, but I mean, there are too many things, thankfully that are working against me from doing that. But I'll tell you, I, I have introduced some of those documentaries to others and they always are infatuated by, and it's really, it's not about climbing a mountain. It is what man can convince himself to do that he doesn't believe he can. I mean, that's probably what I'm most interested in, Bobby. What what I could do when, when I feel like stopping and sitting down and not going another step, I mean, that's when you die. I mean, the Sherpas say that. I mean, if you sit down to rest for five or ten minutes, there's a pretty good chance you're not getting up, and that's why these dead people appear to be sitting down or laying down to take a nap. Um taking a nap in 20 below zero and 50 mile an hour winds and, you know, um, not enough oxygen to keep you alive. I mean, that's not a real cool place to, to take a nap, but it's not about climbing a mountain. And I guess I've always been somewhat infatuated with the limitations of your desire. I mean, how, what are you willing to endure to do this? What are you willing to endure um, to do that? And I mean, if you're going to climb a mountain and you're going to fight a giant, Why not climb the biggest mountain or fight the biggest giant? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Josh, it's not a mountain. I mean, and and I think, I mean, the Rev's heard this until he's tired of it because I can be very overbearing and I know that. I mean, I know I can, but it's, it's, it's what the human being can do 
what they believe they can do and what they really can do, what the, the, end, the eventual accomplishment. I, I, I find that so interesting. And age takes a toll. I mean, I'd like to believe mentally I think things through today better than I ever have. But you can't mentally climb that mountain. I mean, there's a physicality that goes along with it. And 60-year-old legs just ain't as good as 30-year-old legs. And 60-year-old workouts just aren't as intense as 30-year-old workouts. I think accepting that has been hard. Um, y'all, you, you guys have heard me. Don't let the old man in. You know, um, I mean, you know, talking about the life of uh, Toby, yeah, Keith. Uh, Toby Keith. And how that song's just so revealing to me. Um, but but you said that you, I mean, Josh said during the break, Rev, uh, you went and got coffee. He said, I kind of thought about it. I said, you know, at 30, I mean, you said, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You said. Yeah, over this past weekend, I don't know what made me think about it, but I was thinking about how you mentioned in the past you want to climb Mount Everest. And I thought to myself, I, you know, I don't know how Ken feels about it now. I don't know if he feels regret over not doing it, but I bet you could have done it when you were 30. If you came out tomorrow and said, I'm going to go in in a month, I'm going to go to Nepal or wherever it is and climb ma- that mountain, I'd probably have to find, you know, start my resume up, you, update you, my resume. You know what he would end up doing sitting in this chair? <laughs> See, that's, that's right. what he's baiting me is what he is, mm-hmm. Rick. I know. Oh, exactly. so yeah, he, he's baiting me into, into taking the yeah. last chance. Nah, I'm good. Uh, it was a lot, but but it, it's just to me, it's it's not about the mountain. I mean, it is. I get it. I mean, it is. There's no denying that. There's some sense of self-accomplishment anybody would have if they put their mind to something as intense as that, as extreme as that. They dedicate a certain degree of their existence to accomplishing that monumental feat. But, but I'm more interested in what we think we can do and what we can do. Human potential. I, I think the one thing all of us are most afraid of is our human potential. I think Rev's afraid of it. I think I'm afraid of it. I think Josh is afraid of it. I think the majority of us are afraid of of pushing ourselves to our true potential. The one thing that I wish I could gift my kids is the ability to reach your potential, to wake up every day having a burning desire to reach your potential in friendship, in faith, in finance, and being a radio, be the best you can be every single day. Um, I've learned this. Um, high achievers don't like mediocre people, and mediocre people don't much care for high achievers. I mean, they tend to kind of segregate themselves as as time passes by. But but once again, I think the life lesson in the, I don't know, uh, the journey in trying to climb Mount Everest is more about what I think I can do and what I end up doing. I can't do that, but you did. I can't do this, but you did. There's no way I could bench press 300 pounds at 60 years, but you do. There's no way I could run, you know, a five-minute, 40-second mile at 54, but you do. You know what I mean? Just always. Um, I think the American experience, here I go, uh, I think the American experience requires us to try and live up to our potential. And I think society has placed these guardrails too risky. Too big a chance, too hard. Better not do that. Here's an easier way. Here's a better way. Here's a safer route. I mean, I just think the American way requires a certain percentage of us to just try to knock down those barriers, knock down those guardrails, not listen 
to people who say safer way, better way, uh, more effective route. Better not take that chance. Better not take this risk. I mean, I think the vaccine is the classic example of that. Um, I mean, the, the, the people that say it, I don't know, man, something about that medicine makes me nervous. Um, you were by, by the world, by, by the world orderers. I mean, you were a risk to your neighbor. And, and I, I just think the American way requires us to live a little more risky, take a little more chances and the conformity in society today. I mean, I think conditioning to conform, I've said that a lot. I believe that with every fiber of my being condition to conform has been the American way. And I'm glad I am so thankful that it's not always been that way because if conditioning to conform were always the American way, we'd still be bowing to a king and we'd be more nervous about King Charles having cancer than we are anything else in this world. But there were extreme risk takers in the early days of America's founding and throughout America. Imagine Lewis and Clark. I mean, imagine Lewis and Clark coming back and Jefferson saying, never thought I'd see those two cats again. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Good Lord. (laughs) Who was, are those two guys I sent off on that, you know, grand voyage out West? Yeah. And they made it back. Why? Because they pushed themselves. Uh, They, they, you know, the extremes, how many of us have benefited from the extreme attitudes of a Lewis and Clark? I, I just think the American way is a celebration of, of people understanding the margin of what they think they can do and what they're actually capable of. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Brian in Florence. Hello, you're on the air. Hey, uh, on the top of the mountain climbing, by any chance have you seen the movie Free Solo? I have. Alex Arnold, or how do you say his last name, climbed that mountain with absolutely no parachute? Is he crazy or what? He's crazy. I mean, you, you, what's his name, Alex? Uh, Alex Arnold. It's H-O-N-N-O-L-D. Correct, but he does it. I mean, he's free climbing. It's no ropes, no, I mean, no. I mean, you should see it, Rev. It's crazy. Mm. It's, um, I mean, the caller will tell you, it's the most, uh, it, it's like, at times, it's kind of an inverted wall. I mean, he's actually climbing a little bit upside down. Am I right, caller? Absolutely. And uh, if you want to uh, scare the living fool of yourself, watch that movie one time, and you'll be you'll be sprayed for him <laughs> even though you know the outcome. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, Alex, I can't pronounce his last name. He's one of these guys, uh, Josh, lives in a van, you know, not real interested in money, but um, but he takes these. I mean, his hands are stronger than average. His feet are stronger than average. His fingers are longer than average. It's a little bit like what was uh, Phelps. Remember the the swimmer? I mean, they said genetically he's somewhat freakish, but his body was built kind of like God said, and let and you know I'm going to build a swimmer. Uh, and then yeah, kind of web hands and web feet. I mean, he's not Aquaman. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that part man, part fish, but he kind of sort of had disadvantages um, genetically, and his body was built a certain way. This climber is similar um, to that, real flexible, thin, um, stronger than average for a person his size. But, I mean, it's crazy. He's climbing these 90-degree. I mean, it's straight up and down. It's not – I mean, I – Everest is, 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 I mean, it's a long, enduring, I mean, Everest would be kind of a marathon, 
this would be a sprint, but there are these little crevices and cracks that he sinks his two fingers in, and there's no rope. I mean, there's no harness. I mean, he's what they call free climbing. Hmm. And I'm no like, thanks. dude, that's crazy <laughs> that he does it. I mean, I don't know how nervous he is, but I can't hardly watch it. I mean, I'm walking around the room. <laughs> is that one of those where your palms get sweaty just sitting in the oh, but it's on the couch intense. watching it? It's so oh, wow. intense. And um, I mean, he talks about, yeah, well, there, there was this one time that I underestimated or misestimated. I'm just thinking about, now I think they do some of these scout climbs. I mean, I think they do use harnesses and some of the climbing apparatus and gears when they kind of scout the place out, you know, to make sure, okay, uh, you know, this rock formation is solid, it's sound, but it's still crazy what this guy does. Alex, and I can't think of H-O, anyway, it's, it's kind of a weird last name. He's somewhat of an, uh, kind of an out, a society outcast. Well, I mean, how do you hang around with people? I mean, I could find people to play golf. I mean, I could find people to play softball, I guess. I could find people to drink a beer, go to a football game. Hey, let's go climb this 2,000 square feet vertical rise without any ropes or gear. Nah, you go. Alex I mean, I, Honnold. Honnold, that's Honnold. it. I, you, you, you end up a loner. How do you not end up a loner? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you find a buddy to do that with you? Hey, you got your motorcycle. I got mine. Let's go ride Saturday. Yeah, let's do that. Hey. I got an extra ticket to the football game. Want to go? Yeah, let's do that. Hey, uh, I'm going to eat a hamburger. Want to go? Yeah. Hey, I'm going to climb this 2,000 feet inverted, you know, rock wall. Want to go? <laughs> no, nah, I'm good. No. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I get accused at times of being snarky and sarcastic and a bit smart alecky, and I guess one of those times was this morning. You want to know how to get the Senate to come to work at 5 o'clock in the morning? Not to curb inflation, not to secure the border, but rather foreign policy. And foreign aid is always something that mm. Republicans and Democrats have historically has believed a big responsibility with the American government. Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital as a Senate as we speak, are still convening, discussing Ukrainian funding, an aid package. Ryan, what is the latest, and is there any breaking news you can offer in regards to this? Sure. Yes, we do have some breaking news. The, the bill did, in fact, pass with uh, 70 votes voting for it, 29 voting against it. So uh, after a long, long series of filibusters and some overnight votes, this thing has cleared the way to uh, passage in the Senate. And now on to the House. Yeah, that is correct. Where we do not know if Speaker Johnson is going to take this up. He consistently that he thinks these things should be voted on separately. And he also says that there needs to be some border security attached to this before we send any more money to Ukraine or, or anywhere else. Ryan, I'm going to put you on the spot because our listeners are, are concerned. When we decided there probably needed to be standalone bills, why did, why did Ukrainian funding become the priority of the Senate and not border security? Is that a fair question? Well, well, of course it is, yes. So so essentially you had Leader McConnell at first say that we are not going to pass any type of foreign aid package policies along the southern border. So that led to like four months' worth of negotiating where you had a representative from Republicans, Democrats, the administration, uh, as well as an independent there, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona. And after they came up with a 380-page uh, bill, it was shot down almost immediately. Republicans did not feel that it went far enough. Uh, there was some misinformation that was out there and some, uh, certainly a pressure campaign from uh, a lot of individuals, inc including former President Trump. 
And uh, essentially that killed the bill. So the backup plan was just to bring the foreign aid package to the floor by itself. But the Senate has the House border security bill with H.R. 2 that they've decided to not take up. Could there be yes, some sort right. of deal between those two? In other words, the House well, says we'll take up your Ukrainian funding bill if you'll take up our border security bill. Well, that's what's being discussed right now. There, and there's nothing hard in stone, right? There, but there are a number of Republicans and started to say that Speaker Johnson should be negotiating with the White House. It should not be the Senate that's negotiating something like this. So you take like something like the debt ceiling deal where you had Speaker McCarthy and members of the Biden administration coming to a deal that got enough votes in both chambers to pass. Well, the, I think the idea is that maybe if Speaker Johnson and uh, President Biden can meet and, and have a meeting or, or, or assign teams that can negotiate some type of border security bill, uh, then that would probably lead this on the best route possible to passage in both chambers. So there is a push for that, but we have not seen if Speaker Johnson or President Biden are going to take that up. Well explained. Ryan, you always do a great job. Thank you this morning. Hey, you, sir. I, I just don't understand that. I mean, forgive my ignorance. I'm somewhat intelligent, and I'm pretty damn literate at this, having presided over a Senate. I mean, I think that gives me a little bit of qualifications to talk about why the Senate operates the way it does. I respect that the Senate is a little slower. I respect that Americans expect the Senate to be a little more cerebral and thoughtful. And, I mean, I've always said this. I'm not arguing that members of the Senate are smarter than members of the House. The House is kind of a manufacturing plant. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? My, my son has two dogs. One is, is running around a million miles an hour. The other is just like, everything's cool. Um, one of the dogs kind of embodies the characteristics of the House. <laughs> the other dog reminds me of the Senate. It's just kind of, you know, everything's <laughs> cool, man. I mean, we'll get there. We'll get there. I pro- we will get there. Chill. And the other, when we're going to get there? When we're going to get there? When we're going to get there? Um, people are like that. I mean, you know, you've got people in your life, in your lives that uh, we'll get there. Everything's going to be fine. No, we're, no everything's not fine. We got to get there. Got to get there. Um, <laughs> yep. Well, but, but the house runs every two years. The house has to listen with a closer ear to the ground than the Senate on where its constituents are. Josh, it makes sense. Doesn't it? That when you run every two years, you got to be in touch with your constituency. Right. I mean, I was I was here just a year ago running for office. Now I'm back. The Senate can kind of hide a while. You've got six-year terms. I get elected. I know where my constituency stands on border security and Ukrainian funding. They're much more adamant about securing the border than they are funding Ukraine and some of these, you know, foreign military entanglements. But I, you know, I've got four years until I run again. Therefore, I can kind of make it up to them over the long run. I believe the founders intended for that. You can't mob rule. I'm not saying, see, as much as we like to throw rocks at the Senate and the House, we never throw rocks at ourselves. So kind of, kind of in, a, in, a, in the most honest way imaginable, let's as voters be introspective. How many times have we been wrong? A lot. I mean, the will of the voter is not always right. It's always the will of the voter. But it's, I mean, we, we look at our collective will and wants and desires as if they're always right. I mean, they've got to be considered, no doubt. I mean, they, they always have to be considered. Um, 
Public opinion matters enormously in self-government. If, if you know how to articulate public opinion, it matters even more. Um, but in the Senate, you don't have to be as reactionary to public opinion. But, but I think we've got we, we've got to pump the brakes a little bit and say, hey, the will of the people's not always exactly right. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. Sometimes we get emotionally invested. Sometimes we get real obstinate and, and difficult, and we don't want to do this, and we want to do these things. I think there's always a yin and yang, a give and take. Will of the voter, the House has to respond like, like the dog that says, when we're doing it, when we're doing it, when we're doing it. I mean, he's running around the yard, when we're doing it, when we're doing it, when we're doing it. The Senate goes, hey. Well, let's chill for a while. I mean, you know, this is a process. We'll, we'll get to a better place. But I don't understand for the life of me how, as a member of the U.S. Senate, you could take up a foreign funding bill, and I'm talking about the Ukrainian bill, before you take up border security. I mean, the polling is clear. The American people are very divided on Ukrainian funding. They're not as divided on Israeli funding. They're not as divided. Uh, they're not dividing at all on border security. I mean, I've seen polls where 70% of Democrats, 70% of Democrats say, hey, man, this is crazy what's happening on our southern border. we, we got to do something about that. You've got these sanctuary city mayors and sanctuary city governors saying, I can't afford it. I mean, all the, these millions of people are creating strain on our on our resources, we aren't able to do what needs to be done. And that's not, I mean, there's not a divided public when it comes to that issue. There is a very divided public when it comes to Ukraine. So why would the Senate, I mean, in, the, in, this, in, this, uh, in this border security foreign funding bill that is now kind of a standalone, why would you take Ukrainian funding before you take border security? Unless, there's been some conversations you and I don't know about whether the Senate has agreed to take up, you know, um, the House border security bill that is real aggressive. It'll never pass the Senate, and the Senate Ukrainian funding bill will never pass the House. I mean, that's just where we are. And I think the reason is the people, I mean, the voters. The, the voters are not going to let House members get away with prioritizing Ukrainian funding and not border security but the Senate can. The Senate can do a better job of hiding. Uh, it would be interesting to be how Lindsey Graham voted on this Ukrainian bill. He voted against the first bill because he said we got there's got to be a, a you know more of an attempt to secure the border. But but I think Ryan said seventy yeses. But that means all the Democrats and pretty much all the establishment Republicans. And I, the the only thing, and this goes back to my convincing belief that. For us to get to an America first agenda, we've got to be more patient than we want to be because the Senate's elected every six years. I mean, it's going to take several cycles for America firsters to have a significant influence, not in the House. I mean, you can do that in an election cycle. I mean, everybody runs every time, right? I mean, the will of the people are going to be reflected in the House far more than they are the Senate. The Senate kind of lags. You've got this prominent Republican from state Y or state X or state Z. They're well-funded. I mean, they're well-connected. They have the respect of the American people. They have the respect of the people who live in that state. But they despise America first. I mean, we know we have at least a handful of those, probably more. 
but we can turn the house over every single election cycle. It's going to be a lot harder to do it in the Senate, and it's going to take a lot longer period of time. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Jammy in Darlington. Good morning, Jam. Good morning, guys. Uh, that's a great subject, Ken, but I, I'm sorry you've moved on from the extreme sport thing, and that's what I wanted to call in about. Um, uh, spelunking, cave diving. Um, I was watching a program where these two fellows, I think, were in Argentina exploring a cave that had never been explored. And, Ken, they got to this place where uh, this huge piece of granite split like it had been sliced with a knife. And it was a table um, uh, just as flat as it could be, um, probably about 75 yards long. And these two guys crawled in there because there was a large cavern on the other side of this table rock. And these guys crawled in there, and it got tighter and tighter and tight. It got so tight, they had to take their helmets off and push their helmets up before them. And it got to the place where they couldn't take full breaths in their chest. They could only take half breath. Now, if that doesn't freak you out, I was walking around the room like you were <laughs> watching that guy, Cliff, Cliff Gung, climbing the cliffs. I, I just, it would freak me out doing something like that. So there's one other thing I wanted to mention. I noticed Trump has endorsed somebody else to take over the RNC. I wanted you to uh, touch on that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Jam. Appreciate that. And yeah. I'm with you on those videos, Jam. They're pretty no intense. way. I mean, it's it's almost like are those people finding those things to be more intense than they imagined they would be? I mean, they're not doing normal things anyway. I mean, they're not tailgating at a Clemson-South Carolina football game. I mean, they're, they're looking for very extreme situations to get themselves into, but but when do they find themselves in an even more extreme situation than they imagine? I mean, that's normally when some of these folks die. I mean, they, you know, they knew it was out of the ordinary, but they didn't know it was that out of the of the ordinary. Um, I mean, I I'd heard last week that Trump favored the um, the person from North Carolina. I think he's offered up Laura Trump, if I'm not mistaken, as co or you know co co chair co chair of the RNC. Uh, I, Drew will hate me for this and may never come on the show, but the RNC is a dinosaur. The DNC is a dinosaur. Um, I can't convince people who make these decisions to buy into my philosophy. This is a new era. I mean, it's not just a political anomaly. Trump's just not, you know, the um, the force du jour in American politics and, you know, someone who has changed the way the presidency, Trump has changed the political world. I mean, it, it's, I mean, we've got senators now nervous about voting for foreign policy. Republican senators have never balked at voting for foreign policy. But America First has convinced a lot of you that we're wasting too much money and too many foreign entanglements and we're not getting as much bang for our buck as the elites and the military-industrial complex have suggested that we have I mean, if we're going to change, and I think, you know, the majority of us would like to see uh, a major change. I mean, I'm talking about a tectonic shift 
and the nature of American politics, why would you leave the RNC in its current construct? I mean, to me, it's antiquated, it's outdated, it's highly ineffective, it wastes money, it doesn't perform well. I mean, if you apply metrics and measures of the private sector to the RNC, I mean, it would be a failure as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you got too many people, you know, <laughs> freeloading off of the, uh, the, the emblem, the aura of RNC. So I'm one that says, you know, out with the old, in with the new, and that includes the RNC. I'm not saying that you don't need some sort of national organization to help organize some of the, um, the political factions and forces to be more cohesive. I'm not arguing that. But, but I just think the way we've done it over the last 30 or 40 years has been highly ineffective. I don't think we get banged for our buck. And I would like to see not only Trump usher in this kind of uh, disruption that, that we all accept is true, but, but I'd like to see fundamental changes to leadership, not just the people, but, but the organizational structures. Take a break. Back in a few. See, this is an opportunity not to just find a different sort of candidate, but build a different sort of machine. I mean, I, I just believe the DNC has done a better job of embracing technology. The, the RNC is, this, I don't want to insult anybody because I'm kind of one of these. I mean, it's older, wider guys that are in charge of the RNC. And you've kind of got the older, wider guys voting with you. That There's a guy, somebody just texted me a second ago and I told Rev. Scott Pressler is somebody I'd be very interested in and in getting a shot to run the RNC. I mean, let's reorganize, let's rejuvenate, let's reorient the entire machine that is responsible for helping Republicans get elected. And it's hard to argue in the era of voter turnout. And that's what we're dealing with now. I mean, the majority of elections are not about candidates. They're not about ideas and philosophy. I mean, I'd love to tell you that the voters sit down and consider where you stand on the issues and, and where he stands on the issues. It's a marketing ploy. I mean, it is. I'm sorry. I wish it weren't, but it is. I wish it were a contrast of ideas and a contrast of visions, and voters had time to turn Seinfeld off and, and listen to an hour-long debate between candidate A and candidate B about the direction and, and fate of the country. That's not where we are. And I think the RNC still romances about this 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 notion of Reaganism and you know conservatism and the National Review and the and the Weekly Standard and George Will wearing the bow tie and he learned at the foot of uh, William Buckley. That's not what we're dealing with, guys. And I think we've got to introduce our ideas and philosophy and and way of government in a unique and different sort of way. And Scott Pressler is somebody who gets that. Um, I can see somebody googling Scott Pressler <laughs> saying, "No way." I mean, his hair's down to his butt. He's a graduate of George Mason University. He's a political activist, but he has kicked butt in voter turnout. I mean, every campaign he's been a part of has overperformed in voter turnout. And we live in a turnout era. That's what it's about. Let's go to the phone. Rujan in Darlington. Hi, you're on. Good morning, guys. <clears throat> hey, listen, I, I have no idea for, for the life of me what in the hell is going on in the Senate. These guys are going to give all this money to Ukraine. But, Rujan, you do know what's going on. It's the military-industrial complex at work. I mean, they, they're, they're mandating of their membership to get what they paid for. I mean, I understand the frustration. I'm as frustrated as you are, but you are – I mean, you pay attention. You know what's happening. You're just upset by it. Uh, and, 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 that, and that's it. And, and here's the thing. 
you know, you, you got to put your, your your money, you know, put put the rubber to the road. You know, uh, well, he get off the pot, you know, and if you're going to be one of the big dogs, you got to get off the porch. And my thing is, you know, my goal is to go out into the black community and let these people know, look, you've been sold out. You you have no you have no 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 skin in the game anymore. They're going to replace you, and they're doing it with illegal aliens. You've got a situation where you've got your community being ripped or being being uh, dissected, so they can bring in people that are not citizens. They have no. Uh, nothing invested, but they're gaining everything from the system. You know, you can't go down and get a $1,500 voucher to buy you food, but they, just on the on the strength of them coming in illegally into your country, they can do it. You can't get a housing voucher, but they can. You can't get a voucher to, to go to the doctor, but they can. Uh, you know, I've got some of my previous tenants only get $17 a month, and these are senior citizens that are given their life you know, all their life and pay taxes, and they can't even get, they can't get a thing, but these illegal aliens can get everything, you know, and, and here's the thing, this does not go, this is not just stop at the black community, it goes across the board, anybody that's below a certain income level can't get jack, but these illegal aliens can get it all, and that, that to me shows me the Democrat Party doesn't give a damn about low-income individuals in this country. They just wanted to use them to get what they want. So now what's going to happen is, you know, what we've got to do, and I, I include me, is to let these low-income individuals, black, white, purple, green, orange, and yellow, know that the Democrat Party has sold them out so they can stay in power forever. It's sickening. It's absolutely sickening, and I'm enraged by it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, any, any of those senators that voted for the Ukraine plan, I'm making a list. I'm going to call their, their, their numbers and get on their asses because this is ridiculous. You sold out America. You sold us out. Plain and simple. I don't care. Six years from now, in my mind, it's not going anywhere. It's not going away. Yeah, you're going to be in there for six years. I'm not going to forget it. I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to be like a, like a scorned wife who's been cheated on. Thank you, thank you, Rude John. Appreciate it. Me, but, but look, we, we all are entitled to our opinions. I've got mine. You've got yours. You're certainly entitled to that. But here's the fact pattern. I mean, let, let's talk about the fact pattern. The fact pattern is last week, the Senate decided to take up a $118 billion border security package. I mean, that's what it was called. That's not my words. That's there. $118 billion in border security to be voted on by the U.S. Senate. When you dig into that a little bit, you figured out, okay, $20 billion for border security, $60 billion for Ukraine, about $15 billion for Israel, about 6 or $8 billion for um, Pacific security, uh, Indo-Pacific security, that's China, Taiwan, and about $10 billion in humanitarian relief for the, Gaza, for the West Bank, Gaza, and um, Ukraine. That's not a border security bill. But I mean, it's not. That's not a border security. When you're spending $118 billion, and $98 billion is non-border security related, so let's call it what it is. It's a foreign policy hodgepodge. I mean, if, if you're in that camp, fine. You're certainly entitled to believe that Europe is at risk, and we've got to do what we've got to do to make sure America uh, remains prominent on the global stage. I get that. I mean, that's a great argument to make. But the reality is, follow the money. 
And it was clear to me when I read some of the line items that it was not about border security. It's about funding foreign wars. That's my frustration. I mean, if we're going to have a border security bill, then let's have a border security bill. If we're going to have a foreign policy bill or hodgepodge, let's have that. And what the U.S. Senate showed me, and I think most Americans would have to agree with this, another fact pattern. Forget my opinion. The fact is, when they put one over the other as a priority, they chose Ukrainian funding. We're not voting on a border security bill in the House today, stand alone. We're voting on a Ukrainian funding bill. And I think the American people deserve to have their, have their border secured. They're more interested in that than not. I mean, you know, we're kind of divided on Ukraine. I mean, I looked at some of the recent polling in Ukraine. It's, um, I mean, the majority of Americans still support additional funding to Ukraine. Why, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd love to have that question. I mean, I can easily explain why we should secure our border. I can't easily explain why we need to be funding Ukrainian forces fighting Vladimir Putin for fear, I guess, of Russia encroaching on our NATO neighbors. But the Senate showed you who's paying the bills. They, they're they not having, first in line is not border security. It's Ukrainian funding. And I, I just believe, I, I text with someone a second ago, I believe that conventional wisdom is dying. And I think the Senate is slow to learn. And the reason they're slow to learn is they've been propped up by the military-industrial complex. And what 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 just what fascinates me more than anything in all of this, Reb, is how many Democrats now are supportive of these foreign wars. I mean, that, that blows my mind. How many Democrats today are just completely and totally on board with funding American globalism? It's like it has totally reversed. It, it, American, the, the American empire is alive and well as long as Democrats remain in office. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Hey, Charles. Hey, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> when I was talking earlier about lofty goals, um, and I was talking a little bit with Josh on the phone before he put me through, I have a, a pilot's license with an instrument rating, and I've gone snow skiing in Winter Park, but I have never seen the Lizard Man, ever. <laughs> And I've never seen the Loch Ness Monster, but I did sell two cars to Perry Como one time when I worked in Hendersonville many years ago. So uh, I got that going for me. You know, I was cool. uh, we get some real good callers on, on this show, uh, and, and I don't want to name too many because I'll leave somebody out, but, but Sammy and, and Larry and Jamie and, and sometimes even Jeff have very intelligent comments but I'm going to tell you something. The sharpest, most intelligent caller that you get is Rujan, and I really look forward to hearing what he has to say because he is on point every damn time. Um, I'm driving. The reason I called in, I, I can't look it up. I would like for one of you guys to find out who voted for this monstrosity this morning. Who voted? Did either of our senators vote for it i don't think and, they uh, did charles i'll find out for sure but i don't think Lindsay or tim either voted for the ukrainian good. funding bill i don't think now don't hold me to that but i'll try to find out during the break that would be good well thank you so much y'all uh, have a great day thank you and i and i want to reiterate what charles said i mean you know it gets a little bit rambunctious at times it gets a little opinionated at times you folks get a little frustrated at times but i thank you and i mean this sincerely I mean, the growth of this show 
has been something that Rev and I are proud of. And now Josh. But the growth of this show is predicated upon how many interesting and curious listeners there are out there that will take the time to call 843-661-0937. I'm not pandering. I'm not kissing ass. I don't do that. You guys make this show so much better by the conversations and back and forths that we have uh, one with another. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few. I'm going to go back, and I'm not being critical of Rujan because I'm with Charles. Rujan adds a lot to the show. He's normally on target. He gets emotionally invested as a former member of the military and what we're doing here and over yonder, to be real technical. But we all know what's happening. I mean, there's no, we know what's happening. I mean, we're frustrated by it. We're bothered by it. I mean, if you're an America firster and you believe that the future of America requires it to withdraw itself to some degree from the world stage. Now, I've never said, hey, let's build a wall around America and isolate ourselves and grow our own food. I mean, I don't know that I'm totally opposed to that. But anyway, I'll accept that America has a role to some degree in worldly affairs, in global affairs. We can't cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. We don't need to. Uh, you got trade and you got some other um, uh, geopolitical activities that are involved in some of this. Um I asked Rev, I mean, we know how Rand Paul voted, and we know how Mitch McConnell voted. Tim and Lindsey voted no. That's kind of interesting to me. Both voted against the um, the Ukrainian funding bill. But you know what happened. I mean, all of us know what happened. Everybody listening to my voice know what happened. They tried to slide $118 billion of spending by calling it a border security bill, because they know that that's fairly bipartisan today. But that was a way to get another $60 billion to Ukraine, another $15 billion to Israel, another $5 billion to Indo-Pacific uh, conflict, another $10 billion in humanitarian aid. I mean, they used the guise of border security. Of the $118 billion, $20 billion was border security funding. We know what they did. We are well aware of what they did. That's why it's so chaotic now. They're still trying to operate as if we aren't paying attention. And they're still trying to operate as if we're caught in this neoconservative mood. And we're not. The majority of Americans, whether they know it or not, Rev, and it's interesting, the polling, because I've seen polling on Ukraine all over the place, and I believe it's where you, the way you frame the question. I mean, if somebody polled Josh and called Josh and said, Josh, um, I'm from Pew Research. And I'm trying to find out where the American public stand on Ukrainian funding. I mean, would you support Ukrainian funding if it were used to stop Putin from marching across Europe? I mean, Josh is more like, yeah, I mean, I don't want Putin marching across Europe. But if they said, Josh, would you support additional funding to Ukraine? There's going to be no accounting. We're not real sure what the objective is. I mean, that's never the way the question is asked. The military industrial complex controls the narrative. And when Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer sat down, they didn't think about the working family in Peoria, Illinois. They thought about Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and General Dynamics and Honeywell. They thought about the military-industrial complex and how supportive they've been of their political career over the years. Look at the yes votes. The overwhelming majority of yes votes are the, the Democrats who are going to be opposed to anything Trump I mean, if Trump says I'm America first, if Trump said we need to send money to Ukraine, every Democrat by tomorrow morning would say, no, we don't. I mean, that would be the best way to end 
funding to Ukraine. <laughs> if Donald Trump came out and said it makes perfect sense to send money to Ukraine, CNN would turn, NBC would turn, CBS, ABC, and every Democrat would turn. Why? Because they don't want to be caught dead agreeing with Donald Trump. They've been convinced he's the Antichrist. Trump derangement syndrome is alive and well in America. But when you say, I can't understand why they did what, you understand why they didn't take up border security. Because the American people don't lobby government like the military-industrial complex. There's a deal. They've got to consummate that deal. They've got to hold up their end of the deal. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You know, you know, you know damn well while Lindsey Dog didn't vote yes, kid. He did his damn thing for pass anyway. You know that. I know that. He would have voted if it meant Dog getting the bill. But, you know, uh, if you come off for the beach on a Sunday, if somebody's robbing your house and you bust open the door and says, hey, man, what the heck are you doing? It's all right. I, I, I'm a Republican. You turn to the wife, it's okay, honey. He's a Republican. That's the mentality. Or if you're a Democrat and you come off and somebody's taking your kids for a sex change operation, hey, where are you going with my kids? Well, I won't give them a sex change operation. Well, no, 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 no. Wait, it's okay. I'm a Democrat. Oh, okay, honey. It's all right that the kids get a sex change. Democrats part. That's how stupid the people in America are. They, they, if you got that D or the R by your name, well, I'm a Republican, and I used to be that way. I used to say anything the Republicans did, great. Even if my, even if my gut said that, it, that no, I don't like it. I remember when George Bush became president. I remember Rush Limbaugh saying, "Oh, he's playing off. He's playing the Democrats by agreeing to everything they want him to do." And I kept thinking, that sounds stupid. But, you know, I'm a good, loyal Republican, so I'll go along with it. I, I just can't get over how stupid we are here in America. And, you know, uh, kid, by the way, I think that uh, I think that Biden is on the same level as, as Donald Trump, you and I, with it, you know, cognitive-wise. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, you know, that, that's a logical statement. The hell it is. But you got that Democrat by your name, so you got to tell everybody Biden's got his crap together. You know, it's all a bunch of bull. But here's my real point. I wonder if there are any, because what are we going to do after Trump? Let's say Trump does get four years. Who are we going to put in after Trump to keep the ball going? And I wondered if the Republicans have any kind of plan. They ought to have a 50-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 100-year plan, and a 1,000-year plan to preserve this democratic republic. People keep saying democracy. It's not a damn democracy. A democracy is about as bad as communism. If you can have 49 people, I mean, 51 people telling 49 how to live their lives. So, I mean, we got to have a real long-term plan, and I don't believe any of those idiots do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I've said that over and over and over again. I mean, Trump is the wrecking ball. Trump is the disruptor. Trump is the Molotov cocktail. Trump is the middle finger to the man. I don't know that Trump's a lot more than that. He's real good at that. <laughs> but I'm not sure he's much more than that. I mean, where is the ideology of Trump? I mean, it's America first. I mean, it, it's more of a, um, a non-interventionist, non-globalist. But who builds the machine? I mean, I, I want to play something in the next hour. Dr. Bold will be here. He'll endure. And uh, it's about seven minutes. It's Tucker Carlson interviewing J.D. Vance. And I've said from the get-go that Vance, to me, is one of the one of the people who could be an architect of building 
and helping sustain this political movement that is unbelievably powerful amongst a certain percentage of the American people. It, it would be so interesting. I mean, if we lived in a, if we lived our lives like Washington does, and we believed that everything was done in a flight simulator, it would be interesting to put Trump in a flight simulator and let him say, I'm for funding Ukraine. We've got to stop Putin. <laughs> I mean, Putin will march across Europe like Hitler. It would, it would blow the minds of the liberal media, academia, and the political and radical left if Trump did that. Because they've taken an angle opposite of him because they always do. How do you say this guy is the Antichrist if you're agreeing with him at times? I mean, you can't agree with the Antichrist, right? I mean, if this guy's the worst thing to ever come on the political scene in the history of our country, but I agree with him on some of these things, you can't say he can't be both. I mean, he can't be moderately bad. They've told you Trump is evil. They've told you Trump. I mean, I love the, the spin of the media today, Josh. Yeah, Biden's diminished, but Trump is too. I mean, they went for a long time saying Biden's not diminished. I mean, what do you mean Biden's diminished? Biden's fine. I mean, Biden rides bikes. I mean, he jumps over sandbags. You know, he, he does all these <laughs> athletic things. I mean, uh, somebody said earlier, Mayorkas, I think, may have said that one of the toughest things about this job is meeting with President Biden. It sounded like Baghdad Bob. Remember Baghdad Bob? Oh, yeah. And he would come out and he would spew the message of Saddam Hussein. And it was like, hey, Saddam played golf today and had 18 hole-in-ones. Yeah. Yeah. And Saddam saved nine children from burning in a building on his way back from the round of golf. And Saddam stopped on the way to Baghdad and fed 100 um, children who were hungry. I mean, yeah, he had fish and war, you know, that Jesus complex. I mean, Saddam's done all the, it's almost like Mallorca's saying the hardest thing of his job was keeping up with Biden. I mean, he really, when he went into a meeting with Biden, he knew he had to be on his A game because Biden's so sharp. I mean, he's so ready. He's so advanced in his understanding of what these issues are and how they're to be addressed. I mean, he is a, I mean, he's just the most prolific political thinker. Jefferson, Adams, the courage of Washington. Um, the rambunctiousness and profanity of, of Jackson. I mean, he's all of those and more. But then when you can't argue that because there's a, a special counsel report that I believe, here's some breaking news today, I believe the DOJ is done. I don't believe the Oversight Committee is. I think there's a way for the Oversight Committee to compel, for the, to compel to make public the special counsel report and interview. And it'll be, I mean, Good. it'll be verbatim. I mean, I, I, DOJ will never do that. I mean, that's Biden's lawyer. I mean, he, to be honest, he probably shouldn't do it. I mean, if, if Biden makes Merrick Garland the AG, then Merrick Garland kind of owes. I mean, I, I hate to say that. It shouldn't be that way. And if we were Vulcans, it wouldn't be that way. But we aren't. I mean, we aren't Vulcans. Uh, Jeff was talking last or yesterday about Bill Barr kind of, you know, doctoring up some of the special counsel report. Okay. I mean, that was Trump's lawyer. Um, Garland is... Biden's lawyer. I mean, he should be objective and fair-minded and principled, but I think we all understand principled, fair-minded Washington. How do you say those three words at the same time? <laughs> but, um, but I think there's a good chance that the oversight committee will be able to get its hands on the special counsel, uh, kind of the transcript of how some of the interviews went. I've got no idea if there's audio or video, but that, that'll be very interesting. But, but instead of defending Biden now, you know what they're saying? 
Well, I mean, yeah, he's diminished, but so is Trump. I mean, there's only three years, four years difference in their in their ages. I mean, Trump makes mistakes. Trump misspeaks. How many times have you heard that? Well, I mean, but but that's all of a sudden now because you can't defend Biden. I know. I mean, there's no defending Joe Biden. Um, and I and I stand by my comments. I misspeak. Everybody misspeaks. When you run for president, you're going to say things that aren't accurate or correct. At times, you intentionally say them. At other times, they just faux pas. They slip. I mean, you just uh, wow. I mean, I, I do it on the radio and I go home and I say, well, why did I say that? That's not true. Uh, it's not 28%. It's 8%. Why did I say 28%? Now, normally you guys correct me and I don't have a problem with that. Hold me accountable for what I say. But now all of a sudden the argument is they're both diminished. They're both. Well, th- okay. To some degree, one's incoherent. Take a break. Back at a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Doctor Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University. That sounds weird. A conservative talk radio. We got the History Chair, Francis Marion University, on the air uh, with us, stepping into uncharted waters, <laughs> but um, but somewhat friendly waters. And we'll get to the NFL game here in a minute. Um, and Doctor Bolt, he shows up week after week. He does. Well, he enjoys this. Somebody yeah. enjoys the the yeah. bannering. And the um, kind of the conversation, it's a good gig. Yeah, it, it, well, we got, it, it, and it pays extremely well. You know that. And he's rocking his Jefferson Burr, um, 1900 T-shirt. So um, he's good to go I today. Like got two calls. Let's go to the phone. I want to play something eventually this hour, and I want to uh, bolt to listen to it with me, and then let's kind of uh, reflect and 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 discuss what Tucker and JD Vance talk about. But right now, let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. You're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. And the biggest thing about America First is we've got to make sure, it's in the simplest form, I have to have enough to help my neighbor. And and that's the deal. I don't mind helping Ukraine, but we're not just giving them weapons to fight a war. We're providing their whole operation, their retirement, their pensions, their everything i mean look at what we're giving israel 20 billion dollars that's just for weapons why can't we just give them what they need for weapons and anybody that thinks putin can run across europe they're delusional but they keep talking about trump being so dangerous and how he's going to lock up his his opponents how long did uh, hillary clinton get in prison i i that number escapes me. So uh, we're railing against ourselves, actually, because we're not making any progress on changing people's minds as far as America first being we have to be strong in order to help everyone else. All this money we're giving out, we're borrowing. We're not making it or providing something that we have extra. That's the biggest problem. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. See, I, I take exception with what not, not in, I mean, I agree with the majority of what Joe says, but Joe said, we're not making any difference. We are making a difference. I'm not saying we're making a good difference. Some of the proof will be in the pudding. Eventually we'll find out if it's, I mean, I, I, I would never sit behind this mic and say, if only the government would do exactly what I wanted them to do, the world would be a better place. I am leveling with you guys. The majority of what I say is my opinion. 
I mean, it's based on some degree of understanding, but I don't have the world figured out. But we are making a difference. How many times has the House and Senate rammed through a foreign policy spending bill? Nearly every time. I mean, the American people don't stop foreign policy from being executed. I don't ever remember a single incident in my life, Bold, and I'll, I'll let you jump in, where the federal government asked for additional funds to help aid and assist one of our allies defending themselves of one against our adversaries. I mean, that's been, that's been a layup right. historically. No, it's just, yeah. hey, it's, we're in too deep. It's, 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 it's very tough to cut bait and run it. So it's what we've invested so much at this point, right? If we pull out, if we stop, then all that money that we've put in has been for naught. So we got to, it's, it's, it's an unending cycle. And again, either we've got to find a way for the Ukrainians to prevail, or if we are talking about them, we just, we, you got to make the tough cut now. It's like, like break it up with something. You got to rip the Band-Aid off and just, and just do it and get it over and done with. But, but they told us at the beginning, I mean, I remember several speeches by prominent Republicans and Democrats that if we fund the Ukrainians, they can defeat the Russians. Yeah. Now we're hearing if we fund the Ukrainians, they can make it for another year and get a better peace yeah. deal. I mean, it, so, I mean, how are we not skeptical? <laughs> I mean, it's almost like, I mean, I, I did a bit yesterday, or excuse me, last week, Bolt, talking about conventional wisdom. I mean, conventional wisdom historically has said if Putin attacks a nation, America needs to, uh, you know, um, support its support the nation that Putin is attacking. But all of a sudden, Americans are saying, we're thinking a little bit, and we're saying, okay, guys, I understand the complexities of the world. I mean, I understand the world's a dangerous place. I'm not saying America needs to take a pass. But you told me last year that if we approve this $50 billion, Ukraine would win. Now you're telling me that if we approve this $60 billion, Ukraine can get a better peace deal a year from now. Which is it? I mean, are you lying to me now? Or were you lying to me then? And did you know you were lying to me then? Or do you know you're lying to me now? What's the old adage, right? You give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk, and so right, nobody likes it when the goalposts kind of when you change the rules midstream. But again, we're you've invested how many billions of dollars at this stage? If you cut bait and run, then again, you've just poured this money all down the drain. So you know, you're you. It's like I said before, you just you're in too deep to kind of get out of it at this stage. But what is the objective? Oh, I don't know. I think it's just in a yeah, lot yeah, of you, you're a smart man. <laughs> but, you're, a, you're a very bright man, and you just answered the question. I really don't know. But if you look at guys kind of like from my era, my who's, who kind of grew up in the Cold War, you know, you do everything you can to stop Russia. Russia is the bad guy. You funnel money to the guys. Anybody who's fighting Russia is a good guy. All right, so you can give the Ukrainians the money, and we're kind of seeing Trump and the the America First as well a reorienting. If this, if you will. And as you pointed out earlier, right, it's the Republicans who are said, I was like, no, no, no. And before it was the Democrats who was like, heck no. Now it's the Democrats who are in lockstep in this. So again, you've fundamentally re-altered American politics on these issues. And again, there's still sort of a, enough of a consensus that agrees to keep funneling the money. When does it reach a tipping point one way or the other? Well, I mean, the Speaker has basically said yeah. it's DOA the dead, in the House. House. I mean, you can send it over here all you'd like. Now, yeah. now we, we talked earlier, and Ron Schmell's going to answer the question for Fox News. But I wonder, I mean, the, the House has passed a border security bill called H.R. 2. Yeah. I wonder if it's sitting in the Senate, and if they send this vote to the House, the House says, okay, we'll take your Ukrainian funding bill up only if you'll agree to take right. up H.R. 2 and the border security bill. 
it's I mean it, it's it's politics. Sure, there's but, games. But but here's my theory. You ready? I mean, I've not said this today. I don't think. I was thinking about the Republican supporting Ukrainian funding. You look at the polling amongst Republican primary voters. They're overwhelmingly in favor of securing the border. They're overwhelmingly not in favor. I didn't say the American people. I said the Republican voters are overwhelmingly not favoring sending additional funds to Ukraine until we have some clarity. I mean, what is the objective? Right. What, what are we buying? What are we spending all of this money on? The taxpayer um, deserves to know. But you've got to have enough Republicans inside the Beltway who aren't representative of the public's interest to kind of keep the ball moving moving down the field. And the McConnells of the world are more interested in the affairs of Washington than they are the affairs of rural, you know, uh, the city of Buffalo or rural <laughs> South Carolina. Let's go to the phone and then we'll, um, okay, we don't, we don't have that call. Uh, I want to do this. Um, it's about seven minutes, Josh. Let's, let's do this. Let's take an early break. Bolt's here. Okay. I want to play um, kind of a back and forth between Tucker Carlson, who would be not a Putin sympathizer, but certainly not a great defender of Ukraine and the fledgling democracy that the Western world are tolling, uh, we're support, told we're supporting, and J.D. Vance. Someone asked earlier, how do we sustain? Where, where do we go after Trump? I think these two people are critical to the advancement of a sustaining America First political movement. Take a break. Back in a few. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, um, Wake Up Carolina. It became very clear to anyone paying attention several months ago that Ukraine cannot win its war against Russia. The Ukrainian military will not be able, even with Western backing hundreds of billions of dollars of it, to expel the Russian military from parts of eastern Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't have the industrial capacity, neither does NATO or the United States, and it doesn't have the people. Russia has 100 million more in population than Ukraine does. And that means that further support from the West for the Ukrainian military only means more dead Ukrainians and a further degraded Western economy in the U.S. and in Germany particularly. So it's not simply a fool's errand, it's self-destruction. It's insane, it's cruel, it's abetting the killing of an entire generation of Ukrainians. This is very obvious, no honest person at this point will deny it. And yet somehow the United States Senate, which is always several years behind reality and its perceptions just a few weeks ago, decided to send another $60 billion to the Ukrainian government, which is both corrupt and authoritarian. They've canceled elections, they banned an entire Christian denomination, and then they killed an American journalist for noting any of this. And yet, the United States Senate proposed, under Mitch McConnell, a plan to send another $60 billion to Ukraine. Well, imagine the surprise of all rational people around the world to wake up this morning and discover this could actually happen. And so with that in mind, we thought it'd be worth talking to one of the very few Republican senators who's bothered to make the counter case. And that would be J.D. Vance of Ohio, who joins us now from the United States. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. If you wouldn't mind telling us where this legislation is right now, what you expect to happen and what you think should happen. Yeah, Tucker, so there are two big things that will happen here. So tonight we will clear a major procedural vote or we won't. So this is really the best opportunity tonight to kill this legislation encourage everybody to do everything that they can, contact everyone they can to ensure that we actually do kill the legislation. It is very close. Uh, the Democrats have banded together with 17 Republicans. We only need eight of those Republicans to flip their vote to kill this thing. And I think that we'll get at least one uh, who will in fact flip their vote. So that, that, that's where it sits in the Senate. 
The second thing, and frankly, the best opportunity we have to kill this is in the House. Uh, and that's part of what I'm trying to do is notify people about how bad this legislation is so that after it clears the Senate, if it does, then it goes to the House and the House has a real opportunity to at least make it better, uh, but hopefully kill it. And I, and I want to say just, just a couple of things here, Tucker, that are extremely important to know about this legislation. Number one is that it sends $61 billion to Ukraine to fund, as you said, a hopeless war in Eastern Europe that will decimate the Ukrainian population even more than it's already been decimated. So it's a terrible, terrible piece of legislation on the policy. The second thing I want to say, Tucker, though, is that it doesn't just fund Ukraine in 2024. And this is the most important point. It actually funds Ukraine in 25 and 26. Now, what's the problem with that? Say, for example, that we have a new president in 2025. That president would be handcuffed by the promises that we are making in law to Ukraine today. If you go back to, to 2019, Tucker, to try to give you a sense of why this matters. In 2019, the U.S. House impeached then-President Donald Trump on the theory that they had appropriated money to Ukraine and Donald Trump refused to send it to Ukraine. So if Trump is elected president again and become president on January of 2025, he will conduct diplomacy. And if that diplomacy does not include sending additional billions to Ukraine, there is a theoretical argument, a predicate, if you will, for impeaching Donald Trump because they have tried to tie his hands. And the final point I'll make on this, Tucker, is that the Washington Post has already has already said, based on leaks from inside the intel community, the purpose of this legislation is to tie a future President Trump's hands. We're not just sending billions to Ukraine in 2024. We're trying to make it impossible for the next president to conduct diplomacy on his terms. It's anti-democratic, and it will lead to endless war in the, all over the world. So uh, the political calculation behind this seems incredibly dark. So does the humanitarian effect. I noticed that no one on Capitol Hill seems interested in finding out how many have died in this war. Reliable estimates in the area, these are not partisan, uh, are that about 400,000 Ukrainians have died. That's about as many Americans as died in the entire Second World War over the entire duration. And it's, of course, a much smaller country. So how do senators, Republican senators, get away with saying we're doing this on behalf of the Ukrainian people, on behalf of democracy, when it's destroying an entire generation and it's not a democracy. Like, what's the thinking here? Well, Tucker, they bought into the propaganda that what is in the best interest of Ukraine is to prolong this war. And so Zelensky comes to Washington. You know, he's tougher than a lot of them are. And I think they get, uh, you know, a, a little bit of excitement from that. And Zelensky tells them a story that his war is in the best interest of the whole of Ukraine. Now, never mind that there are people within Ukraine protesting the draft. Never mind that the average age of a soldier there is pushing 45 years old. And never mind that the 650,000 wealthiest Ukrainians left the country at the beginning of the war. Uh, they didn't stay and fight. So the idea that this is unanimously supported by the Ukrainian population is, of course, preposterous and absurd. No one believes it. But, but here's, here's the really crazy, and I, and I think ultimately the very cynical thing that's going on, Tucker, is that everyone knows that this war will lead to the destruction of Ukraine. I've had conversations with Democratic colleagues where they get this sort of dark look in their eyes and they say effectively that they want to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian drop of blood. I, I, I think if you really ask these guys, they recognize that this is not in the best interest of Ukraine. 
Uh, this is fundamentally in the interests of military contractors and people who think that America's most pressing challenge is to defeat the Russians. Of course, that's not a preoccupation that I share. I don't think Russia should have invaded Tucker, but I also think that we got to be much more focused on more pressing problems like the demographic collapse of the United States, like the open borders and like what's going on in East Asia. So it's a massive campaign, Tucker, to distract people from the real problems in the world and the real problems that exist in this country. And underlying it all, as you just said, is is an impulse that's that's indefensible and I think deeply immoral. Um, so I, I'm so grateful for you having the courage to talk about this in public. And I and I hope common sense in your position prevails. Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio. Thank you. I mean, is there anything irrational about that? I mean, is, is that too? I mean, Bolt and I were talking Dr. Wilbolt history chair, Francis Marion University is with us. We were talking about, you know, nobody mistakes Trump for an intellect. I mean, I don't think he's dumb by any stretch of the imagination. But he's a practical man. I mean, he's a business guy. He doesn't live in the world of, you know, reading a book about business and, you know, self-empowerment and, you know, an academic understanding of the economy. I mean, he went to Wharton. I mean, he's educated. He's highly educated in that regard. But he but he appears to be a more practical man, a more commonsensical approach um, to government. I mean, I, I think you could argue that there are intellects within America first, and Tucker Carlson and J.D. Well, Vance are two of those. You can't argue with that, which are, they're very, very thought-provoking. And again, once Senator Vance sort of peel back and kind of shine some light on the, the devil is in the details, the fact that this is going to hamstring us or tie us to funding several years down the road. This is just isn't a one and done. And I think that's probably the message you need to get out uh, to a lot of Americans. They should have been shouting that much sooner because a lot of people said, all right, maybe just this one time, but you can't sort of force succeeding generations. The next Congress, the next president should be able to determine on his own, his or her own merits, right? If we're going to be doing this or not, circumstances might change. You're, you're backing us into a corner at this point. But again, just forcing whoever comes along next, their hands are tied. And certainly that's not very, uh, no politician, no, no leader wants to have to deal with that. And again, as you said, it's almost a trap that you're going to, if you, if the president says, no, I agree, this is a lost cause if things change. And then you don't decide to continue that funding. Well, then you've got another impeachment inquiry, and round and round we That's go. That's devious. Once I mean, again, it, yeah, it, yeah. But, but it, politics but it's, at its finest, though. It, yeah. it is. It's politics <laughs> at its finest. No question about it. But uh, we're talking about you know our, mine and your one of our, our political heroes, Thomas Jefferson, who I would argue probably the greatest political theorist in the history of our nation, mm -hmm. a thinker, uh, unlike very many others. But Jefferson spoke and wrote a lot about wrote more than he spoke about. Yeah the right that a government has to make subservient to future generations, their whims, their desires, yeah. what they want a nation to be like. So when I hear J.D. Vance say, not only is this, yeah. you know, funding Ukraine today, it ties the hands of a future yeah. president who may have a different argument yeah. or different uh, persuasion. But, but Bolt, I want to go down this road with you. There is no question that old habits die hard. Yes. I mean, yes. There is no doubt about that. And, and I don't know that you or I have the capacity to convince a McConnell or a Romney or a Schumer yeah. or a Cornyn or some of these <laughs> other old hands, old yeah. guard, both Democrat and Republican, that Russia is still the former Soviet Union. And they're always trying to put the band back together. <laughs> and at the end of the day, no matter how many Ukrainians have to die, it's in America's best interest. I, th th I guess what I'm asking, I mean, I, Obviously, the military-industrial complex is an mm -hmm. enormous influencer mm -hmm. in in our nation's capital. But if old habits die hard, there's some sincerity here amongst the old guard of the Senate. No, I, I think 
you you made the point earlier that in, in the previous hour before I came on, you can fundamentally alter the House in the blink of an eye. One election cycle, bang. You know, you've, you've got a majority. Things turn much, much slower in the Senate. Again, this it tells you a lot about the conservative nature of the founding fathers, that the Senate terms are staggered. All right, these guys, once they get in, I mean, unsitting these guys, it's very, very tough to do. And even if some big wave comes along, you're only going to pick off a handful of these. So, again, you've got you've to continue to hit the ground running for several election cycles. And it's a tough, it's a tough ask. It's tough to kind of get rid of the rot, if you will, to kind of just pull out all of these weeds, if you will. You've got to fight battles in Washington at how many state levels. And again, some of these guys are just so entrenched, their institutions in their states, they've got a family name, their love. They know how to bring the, the pork down. So just getting rid of these guys, it's it's a Herculean task. And it, and again, it's just, it's it's almost impossible probably to do. I'm going to try and do this before we get together tomorrow. I'm going to look because I asked Rev the yeses in the Republican side. Yeah, who I mean, I, I really believe this, and I wish it weren't the case, but I believe the Democrats are motiv- motivated to be opposed to Trump. Yeah. I mean, wherever Trump lands, yeah. they, they believe it's in stage. their best interest to be opposed yeah. to Donald Trump. It's going to be interesting to me to see how many jobs are in the states of the yes votes of Republicans <laughs> relating to the military-industrial complex follow the money yeah i mean you're talking about louisiana you're yeah, talking kennedy of louisiana was a yes grassley how about cassidy of how about cassidy of louisiana uh cassidy of louisiana yes okay well here, here's the deal guys you ready here's the dirty secret there are probably many 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 jobs associated with the military industrial complex in louisiana that leaned on cassidy and leaned on kennedy and convinced them you want to be well-funded yeah. I mean, do you want to make sure, you know, you don't get a primary? Now, they're going to get yeah. primary. Cassidy, I think, has already kind of admitted I'm about tired of this. But but it goes back to the thing Bolt told about. I've argued generational realignment can happen in a nanosecond of the House. Yeah. I mean, it can. There's no doubt yeah. about it. It's a little bit like a, um, I mean, it's a factory. And it manufactures policy. And it's it's running around 100 miles an hour. The Senate is different. And it's always, I think J.D. Vance said, the Senate historically has been behind the curve. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's behind the curve, and it may take another two or three election cycles yeah. for America First to become a dominant force. And there's no doubt it's dominant in the House. Yeah, you can yes. That there is no doubt, and I, and I'm telling you, this bill is DOA. But this bill will never get out of that. They may not even take the bill up, Doctor Bolt. Yeah, it, it looks like, but never say never. Once you get something into conference committee, if they do move something on the border. You, know, you you never know who gets appointed to those committees. You know it's 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 like sausage making. Sometimes you, you we may not see this this may this may come to Biden's desk at some. I don't think I don't think it's likely, but there's there's a couple of pathways. There is the chance for a discharge petition, where you've got some of these vulnerable Republic, the New York Republicans who are kind of in favor in that camp as well, might side along with the Democrats. They might say, hey, you don't want to you're not moving fast enough on the salt the tax stuff that we want at home. And this is the way we're going to do. So there's pathways. I think there's enough consensus. The Republic at, at this stage, they want to stay together, but never count your chickens before they hatch. Stranger things have happened. If the Senate agreed to hear HR two, the house absolutely yeah. would agree to hear uh, the bill. I mean, they put it on the floor and let debate begin, mm-hmm. but I think that's the ace in the hole. The Senate has, we sent you guys a border security bill. We want that bill to be, you know, presented to the membership yeah. and it's going to be hard for Democrats or Republicans 
to say, hey, Ukrainian funding is more important than securing right. our border. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Got a call? Hang in there, caller. We'll get to you on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Just a couple of academic intellects <laughs> kicking the proverbial <laughs> political can down the road. Right, Bo? I don't know. With, with, <laughs> Springsteen has a song called Radio Nowhere. I, yeah. I, he had this He had this show in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, no question about that. Bolt would be the intellect. I would be the practical man. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Nick in Lexington. Hi, Nick. You are on. Hello, fellas. Dr. Bolt, and more. more of an academic question, and sure. I know this may not be your expertise. What form of government is Russia now? I know they're not. I know they have capitalist capitalist markets. Are they communist? Are they? I mean, I know we think they're communist. But now I'm starting to question that, that the boogeyman that I've been indoctrinated to believe may not be a boogeyman. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. I think that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think they are communist when they need to be communist. They're more market oriented when they need to be market oriented. It's a, I mean, it's a fascinating situation that people my age find ourselves because we've been trained, and I think Bree said it, Nick just said it, we've been trained and conditioned to believe that Russia, the former Soviet right. Union, is indeed it's the boogeyman. Bad. Everything bad is bad about it. Absolutely. And and if they're not to be dealt with the way the neocons say they're to be dealt with, then there's trouble of brewing in um in Eastern Europe that eventually walks its way, uh, marches its way across Western Europe. But but how many? I'll ask Bolt on the spot. I mean, I asked you about this last week. You introduced us last year to a female professor yeah. that has a great deal of experience and understanding of the Russian culture <laughs> yeah. and the post-Soviet <laughs> Union. Yeah. Um, I mean, she lived during the Cold War, mm -hmm. obviously, but she would have a great grasp. Can I publicly ask you, if you don't mind, sure. see if she's willing to make a, um, a repeat? We'll pay her the same thing this time <laughs> as we paid her um, last time. I'm sure I'll, I'll mention it to her. And I'm sure she'll be like, probably be happy to come back. Yeah, and she's, again, she's just she lived through the Cold War. Oh, she still has family over there, and she has to be very, very careful what she says when she when she talks to them. And the fact that we we take it for granted, right? Well, and we hope that Big Brother isn't listening in on us when we make a phone call or a text. But somebody in that part of the world, they 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 have to be very, very cautious about what they say. And so, yeah, she's got a lot of insight uh, and a lot of excellent opinions on what's going on over in Eastern Europe, particularly in Russia at this time. So, yeah. A lot of Putin's complaint, I mean, I watched the entire two-hour interview of uh, Vladimir Putin with Tucker Carlson. I mean, he gave a 20-minute, I mean, it, very, very condensed, very cohesive, very understanding history of Eastern Europe. Now, now some of that's propaganda. I don't sure. believe Vladimir Putin at his, at his bravery word. I mean, I don't. But, but you're talking about, you know, in Russia, you got to be careful what you say. Well, I mean, I live in a country now that I got to be careful yeah. what I say. And if I say the wrong thing, I get 18 likes. And the tweet gets, well, I mean, it's different in Twitter now than Elon Musk. So, so to suggest that they're fundamentally different than we are about free speech is not yeah. true. I mean, that's just not the truth any longer. There was a day it was. In yeah, previous right. and former America, in the former Soviet Union, free speech was celebrated. Free speech was not celebrated. I have no idea how communist Russia is compared to how communist the Soviet Union right. was. Is that a fair question? I, I think you're right. it's, it's probably more authoritarian. It's, it's, it's probably replaced it instead of a, a communist form of government. I think you're kind of looking over your shoulder and, again, being very, very wary 
uh, of contradicting or saying anything bad about Putin. That's 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 how I would characterize. I might be wrong, but it, it seems like it's the the, mo- the model has kind of shifted away from just a, a communist or sort of a central committee, a central planning committee, where it's just a constituency of one at this stage of Vladimir Putin. A lot of Putin's motivations, Dr. Bolt, are that NATO is a anti-Russia, yep. Western <laughs> advancement, transatlantic political operation. You say what to that? I, I, I think he's right. I mean, that's why NATO was established in the 1940s, to act as a check, a break uh, on Soviet expansion. After the Soviet Union collapsed, perhaps maybe then you could have said NATO has outlived its, its usefulness. But again, the, the common theme today seems to be old habits die hard. Right. So NATO is just sort of ingrained in our in our DNA. Right. You know, the, the Brits, the Canadians, the French, the West Germans, every who was everyone who was a part of NATO. Uh, we've still had to have their back. It's always been debatable whether they've had our back. We go back to 9-11. But that's a story for another day. But again, this is just something that's just been around for a lot of guys like us who kind of grew up sort of at the tail end of the Cold War and. And maybe our fathers just indoctrinated us with Tom Clancy novels. We just kind of knew that. All right, anybody who's in NATO, there, they're a good guy. Uh, we've got to continue. This is a, an alliance that's been around now for what over seventy years. Uh, there's no reason to abandon it. But again, who'd have thought that we'd be having this this discussion that President Trump is suggesting? Well, it's, it's outlived its usefulness. And if you don't pay up, if you're late in your dues, well, then you know, <laughs> you're not going to get the full protection support. Of the United States, so it, it's astounding that we're having these these conversations. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sam in Cross Hill. You are on with Doctor Bolt. Uh, good morning, Doctor Bolt. Morning, I always sir. enjoy your uh, appearances. Uh, Thank you, sir. On the show, uh, I wish I could have taken a class from you back in the early days. <laughs> but anyway, a uh, couple of couple of things uh, real fast. Um, your your office neighbor there, Doctor Jody Lipford, taught Edcon at Presbyterian College. Uh, I'm a retired faculty member from there. All right. He had a course. He had a course that uh, was sponsored by the BB and T Foundation. It was called Foundations of Capitalism, and the requirement in that course was that the, we use Ayn Rand's uh, Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> and um, kind of circling back to earlier discussions this morning of about Ken talking about. Uh, a man reaching his potential, you know, Ayn Rand, that's kind of the theme in Atlas Shrugged with John Galt and then the Fountainhead with Howard Rourke. She she honored and, I guess, uh, praised men that kind of fought the system and reached their 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 potential. And I kind of see uh, I kind of see Ken as that kind of person, too. He's he's sort of the. Uh, I, I wonder sometimes whether his family tree has uh, some Rand in it. We might call him Ken Rand uh, Ard, and uh, the question might become uh, who is who is Ken 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 Ard. But but anyway, these guys fought the machine, and and I, I see Ken out there kind of probing us all to question <laughs> the machine the machine in the cathedral. So this is just a great great show this morning, and finally uh, Ken and Dave and. Do you guys even know who Perry Como was that my friend Charles mentioned this morning? <laughs> he got a Christmas special. Sure. Yeah, singer, yeah. right? The Perry Como <laughs> Christmas special. I can remember that. Seemed like there was a tweed sweater vest involved. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I, was, I was impressed that he has he sold two cars in Hendersonville to Perry Como. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Thank Sam. You, I, I appreciate that. And, Bolt, I don't want to drag you down this road. I mean, I'm very comfortable going down this road. You've got – pensions and retirements and career at stake that I, that I don't have for now. But I think one of the beauties of talk radio is, I mean, I think there's some value here, guys. I mean, you're a historian. I think we are better when we don't take 
the powers to be at their word. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're all better served when there are voices out there unafraid. You're talking about totalitarian governments. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Russia would be better off if if the leadership accepted that the people have a right to question its right. authority and why they deserve to be in charge and why they deserve to make these decisions. Um, I mean, I'll never shy away from that. I mean, one of the one of the great points of this job, and I guess educating young people, is to try to create a degree of enthusiasm in right. them, within them, to question authority, right. to never take leadership right. at its word. I think that's another part of our DNA. We've never been lemmings, right? We're just kind of like following on and walking off the cliff. And it goes back to sort of to, to Jefferson. And Jefferson at one time said, when you cannot criticize the government, you've ceased to be a free and an independent citizen. And that's that's just the, the, the genius, the beauty of America, that, again, we get to criticize our elective. We have not so much annual, but at least biannual elections for the members of the House, our closest representative. And, and this is just to always, I think, the, the exceptional nature of the United States of America and why so many people are trying to come. Right? So many people throughout the world want what most of us really just take for granted. And a lot of people are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice uh, in other parts of the world for a lot of things that we just think uh, or just assume that we've had all throughout our lives. We'll explain. Thank you for your time. Hey, have a good week, guys. Thank we'll, you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Sam in Darlington. Hello, Sam. You're on the air. Uh, morning. Uh, sorry I missed uh, Dr. Bolt. I wanted to ask him if I was right about this, but... It's my understanding that Francis Marion, the General Francis Marion, uh, fighting during the Revolutionary War, he was kind of well-known for retreating when it made sense. Uh, and he would get into a fight, and uh, then he'd see it wasn't going well, and he'd pull his men back. And at the end of the day, the British would have so-called won the fight, but they you know, lost 15 men dead and 25 wounded, and Francis Marion had two men lightly wounded. And he knew when to hold them and when to fold them. And I, I think our military-industrial complex is asking us to, to stay and fight and keep on wars going uh, when it doesn't really make any sense, and we're wasting our lives and wasting uh, the lives of the Ukrainians and all. So I thought it was a good discussion this morning. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. I'm paraphrasing fairly loosely here, but Marion said of Thomas Sumter that he'd march his men through pools of blood to get his name and lots and prove a point. I mean, he didn't say name and lots, obviously, but, and I said, I'm loosely paraphrasing, but Marion was a, a decorated general, but a very ethical man and understood that primarily his obligation was to keeping his troops alive. I mean, that, that was what motivated him more than anything. How do I make sure these men don't get killed? And if he felt it was too risky, he would not take the chance. No matter how big a hero he may have been, no matter how, in other words, why climb Mount Everest today when it may not snow tomorrow? And I, I, I think we could do this, Rev., um, we did a podcast, No Stoplights, with Ben Ziegler. Ben's a local attorney here in Florence, but very versed, very studied. I mean, I call him our resident historian. He doesn't much like that because he, he's an attorney by, by trade. But Ben and I sat down for over an hour and and did a big, uh, I don't know, a kind of an explanation of Marion and why he's so 
relevant and why he's been under-celebrated a bit. Uh, we even went down the road of Marion in relation to some of the thought leaders, the Jeffersons and Adams of the early American um, existence. And Ben and I have agreed that we're going to do a series called The Road to the Revolution. He's far more scholarly and, and adept at that than I am. I mean, I know enough to be dangerous, but I've studied Marion, and I understand the complexities of Francis Marion. I mean, he was a, a, probably the original guerrilla warfare tactician, but he was an ethical man and a very honorable man and had respect for human beings throughout the process. I know war's dirty and the fog of war and the chaos of war, and you wish they never have to be fought, but I do believe that there has to be a certain ethic required of leadership. And if you know that you're marching Ukrainian men into a great, uh, into a, uh, I don't know, a, a meat grinder, I mean, where, where's the ethic there? It, it, you know, does McConnell know how many Ukrainians have been killed, and does he care? I mean, that, that would be a fair question. Senator McConnell, do you know how many Ukrainians have died? Do you care? Take a break. Back in a few. Talking about climbing Mount Everest or not at 30, at 60, at 70, at 20, whatever age, um, health is the big part of that. One of the problems, I, I, I love America, Democrats in particular, they'll talk about the problems of communism and the Soviet Union. And I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to me how hawkish they become. And my response lately has been, okay, we're criticizing the communists. But when I try to buy health insurance on the Obama exchange, they don't ask me if I'm taking medication. They don't ask me what my blood pressure is. They don't ask me my cholesterol reading. They don't ask me my BMI. They don't ask me if I exercise. They want to know how much damn money I make. How is that not communism? I mean, it's at least socialism. It's probably communism. If you are as upset, hot and bothered as I am about the health care exchanges, and you're reasonably healthy. I think I'm reasonably healthy. You're under the age of 65. That means you don't qualify for Medicare. You're paying too much for health insurance unless you work for a big company that offers that as part of the benefits plan or you work for the G-U-B-M-E-N-T. I don't do either. I mean, I'm one of these eat-what-you-kill kind of guys um, that doesn't get asked when trying to buy health care what your cholesterol levels are, what your blood pressure is, what your BMI is. I mean, stand to reason, wouldn't you, Rev? I mean, when you try to buy auto insurance, don't they pull your driving record? Mm-hmm. Don't but get me not, started. Not, not in the socialization of health care, uh, 20% of our economy. How much do you make is the most important question. Because if you make enough, we want you to help some of these folks who aren't taking care of themselves pay more for health insurance That's not real complicated. It's expensive. It's unfair. But if you're under the age of 65 and reasonably healthy, jot this down. 839-888-3970. 839-888-3970. Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare or go to the website, realchoicehealthcare.com. My wife and I decided that we wanted buffet Saturday morning. I'll play into this story off the beaten path. So we, um, there's a barbecue place that we found down uh, Pauly's way, and we like going there. Uh, good country buffet. Um, I told her, I said, I could eat 10 plates, but I'm not. I'm eating one, and that's it. I ate one. A little bit of discipline there. Uh, I'm not some superhuman. 
rest assured, but I know when to say when. And most times, I stop when the appropriate time is. Well, one good old boy behind me didn't know when to say when. He went once, he went twice, he went three times, a lady. Um, and the fourth time he went, he got nothing but fried chicken. Now, he got a barn full of chicken. <laughs> and it made me angry. And my wife said, why do you get angry at something that you have nothing to do with? Right. Why are you even paying attention? I mean, why, why are you even worried how much that man is eating and how many pieces of fried chicken? I said, because eventually his unhealthiness becomes my problem. What do you mean by that? And, and I told her the story of the Obamacare exchange. I said, uh, dear, they don't ask you how healthy you are. They ask you how much you make. And eventually three plates of food and four pieces of fried chicken at one sit down that's Pamplico for meal time. But one sit down probably creates some medical complications, and eventually he'll pass that cost alone on to society in general. That's socialism. I mean, that that's I mean, that that's far worse than collectivism. That's the Russian way. No, let me back up. That's the Soviet Union way. We're all in this thing together. You eat seaweed sandwiches. Think about climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> I'm eating four pieces of fried chicken for my fourth plate of food, but guess what you got to do when you buy health insurance? You got to subsidize my unhealthiness. It ticks me off in a way that you can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, it makes me, oh, uh, anyway, let's go to the, uh, let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, you're on. Hey, good morning. Hey, how many shows could have, you talk about Perry Como, Diddy Dance. Please bring that lady from Francis Marion. I remember where she's from, but I don't want to mention it because I don't want to jeopardize her. But I think she was show, from man. Belarus, uh, if I'm not mistaken, David. Yeah, I knew that, but why you got to bring that my bad, up? My I bad, mean, my bad. It was supposed to be a secret, Okay, man. I'm sorry. Uh, I well, when it, I know the right mean, answer, I get full of myself, and I yell it out before I even think about it because I hardly ever yeah, know the right answer. watching Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, so Ukraine, you know, Perry Como had a song. It was called It's Impossible. Uh, but some of that, don't think about that. I mean, as long as we can send money there, I guess it becomes possible. It's about J.D. Vance, no, he was talking about Ukraine. What was the whole deal behind the first Trump impeachment? Putting you on the spot, Ken. What was, was the whole was, deal about it was, that? It was about the Ukrainian funding. Yeah, he's just asking a question. You know, I'd like to know, and I can't do my Trump impression this early, but, you know, uh, what's, what's the deal with this Joe Biden? What's this deal, you know, Burisma, Joe Biden? You know, you're just asking questions about what's going on with the country. And all of a sudden, all these people, which became the Ukraine hearings industry, they turn around and we had to have to watch these people every day and this and that and that Adam Schiff. And, and oh, God, that old... Donald Trump's a bad guy because he asked a question about Joe Biden and what he's doing in Ukraine. And so the next thing you know, we're ending up uh, funding these people. And I think Lindsey Graham actually said, why are we doing it? We need to loan these people money. If you want to buy weapons, we got them, but pay us back. But why would we just, just hand you money over uh, for no reason? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense. And it's sad about this, and, and I'm going to stop right quick. I really wanted to talk about Nikki Haley today, but anyway, we'll talk about that tomorrow. You have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that.
Well, I mean, it, I go back to, and I try to listen to what people say. I try to give them, to some degree, the benefit of the doubt. So, I mean, I, as an America firster, I'm less inclined. I mean, I would probably be more in line with Rand Paul than I am anybody about intervention. And I am just like the majority of you who grew up when I grew up. I was convinced that we needed to do whatever we could to stop the former Soviet Union because if we weren't careful, we'd relive the Holocaust. I mean, that, that's kind of the way it was pitched to me. I mean, whoever the Russian, excuse me, whoever the Soviet Union leader is, I mean, they're thinking about expansion. I mean, they're thinking about taking over Europe. They're thinking about changing the world into, you know, a, uh, a communist empire. And I believe that. I mean, I believe that Reagan was right when he said peace through strength. I believed that neoconservatism was the way to go. I tried to understand what William Buckley and George Will meant when they wrote very convincing and intellectual arguments uh, made for the, uh, the, the cause of globalism. And then one of these days, not too long ago, it kind of dawned on me that nothing they tell me ever comes to fruition. Nothing they say plays out as I was told it was going. And I became very cynical, very contrarian in nature, very disagreeable, uh, a bit obstinate to the Republican creed. And I'm not talking about the Republican creed you quote at a Monday meeting. I'm talking about the orthodoxies of the Republican Party. We are the party of um, the American empire. We, we unapologetically intervene in affairs around the world because we're promoting democracy and, you know, uh, self-government and rights and liberties and, and human dignity. And I still believe that to some degree. But, but I believe the majority of decisions made about where we intervene or not are made because of the dollar. I mean, the money, follow the money. And there's an, there's an enormous amount of money. I think Josh, Josh hardly ever nods at anything I say. But, but one day, not too long ago, Josh, I said, the most lucrative businesses in the world are disease and war. And you were like, mm, okay. I mean, I hadn't thought of it. Okay. I mean, he's right there. I mean, Pfizer. Pfizer advertised at the Super Bowl. You know what the advertisement said? We're ready for the next big fight. I mean, you may hear, wow, I'm glad Pfizer's on the job. I hear Pfizer's going to convince us that there's something else to scare the bejesus out of all of us, and we got to get another shot or another treatment or another, or another medication. I'm not diminishing what Pfizer has done. I mean, it, it, in America today, it's almost like if you take this this tact, the, the other is mutually exclusive. I mean, I can't believe that Pfizer has done good work on behalf of humanity if I believe that they're in this to make money, promote a vaccine, and convince Americans who don't need to be vaccinated to be vaccinated. I mean, I think both can be the truth. I think Pfizer can be a reputable business that, that has unbelievable scientists and healthcare professionals doing work, trying to keep Americans happy, trying to keep uh, Americans healthy and people around the world healthy. But I also believe that they're, they're, they answer to the market. I mean, they answer to the bottom line. And their CEO is making decisions based on kind of a convergence of, okay, we've got these scientists and medical experts making advancements in treating disease as an illness, but we've also got this, this investment track, and we've got to be popular at Wall Street. Our quarterly earnings have to be above what they expected them to be, or I get judged, um, you know, um, detrimentally, or I get a negative. The job I'm doing is looked at negatively. In other words, how many, 
How many financial reports from Pfizer say, look, guys, we lost $20 billion, but our scientists are at the, at the precipice of a, of a drug that will change the world forever? The investors at Goldman, uh, Vanguard, and BlackRock will say, whoa, 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 I, I get that, but let's talk again about how much money did we lose? How much did you say we lost? Money's the answer. <laughs> now, what's the question? Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Hi, Anthony, you're on. Hey, fellas. Ah, kid, you threw me off. I was listening to you so hard. Just now. I forgot what I was going to say. But um, a lot of it, Ken, I believe, is um, divide and conquer, man. Um, at one time, a lot of the blacks and whites in America were, there wasn't so so much racism because I learned that there were a whole lot of black senators and black congressmen and black business people back in the day. But through media, media is so, so important. It divided us. And to this day, it divided because I hear lots of you saying now that I've heard uh, um, many black speakers say back in the day, but because we were divided, the white people with the power wasn't listening to the black people with that was saying that knowledge. And the media keeps us divided. Because I was thinking about Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, I would try to follow the, um, follow the money. Now, he came in, he had a movement of getting all the AM stations locked up where people, I mean, the movement was conservative radio stations. But at the same token, he, he, huh? Oh, at the same token, he made a lot of money off that, but it changed media. Back in the days, Ken, you could watch news, local news, and see a story of one of your friends down the street, and you would joke with him later on, I see your news or whatever. Now the media is, if you see your friend down the street, chances are he is dead or his house has been robbed or something. It's always negative, negative, negative. And to me, in South Carolina, for example, if y'all had your own local media, y'all got enough farmland in South Carolina to really feed South Carolina for pennies on, on a dollar when it comes to the grocery stores. But a system came through that got everybody, and I'm hoping you or Rev can tell me about what years this was, whenever it convinced everybody to get the, the pig pens out of your backyard, um, get rid of the cow patch, get rid of chicken coops, get rid of your garden. And we had a whole lot of small grocery stores back then. Now it is mostly one or two big ones that control the prices. And the food that we eat is poisoning us. But back then we grew our own food. I believe it was a movement. And because we didn't have our own local media, we couldn't fight that movement. Same, same way we can't fight it now. Somebody just uh, um, approved $900-something billion. If, if we had a true media, wherever he is from that, that voted yes, there will be signs saying that he voted yes, and, and he, you have answered answer to his family, his people around him, and back home, whatever. But with no media, we don't know who voted in for the 90 some billion dollars to go to Ukraine or taxpayers' money because we don't have a true media. But I want to ask y'all, what period of time was it whenever people started not having their own cow pastures, their own chicken coop, uh, their own crops or whatever? And when did we start, like I say, Rizim Howell, he had a party. I don't think he knew about it, though, because if you got power like that, you can make a movement. Rizim Howell never made a move. He never in, informed his people to do this and change the world. To do this. All he got, all he knew was, Certain people gave him information, and he was so good at not letting people know who told him what. And Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Well, I think what Limbaugh did was plant the seed. I mean, he didn't live long enough to see the tree 
you know, I mean, he saw some roots. And I, Rev and I've talked about that. I mean, Limbaugh said he was discouraged when he went to work because there's still liberals, there's still Democrats. Well, I mean, that's not, to me, that's not Russia's job to convert liberals into conservatives, is to argue factually a worldview that he could easily defend. I mean, that, that's what I try to do. I don't, I don't have a burning desire to turn liberals into conservatives. I mean, I don't. I, I try to respect liberals. I try to listen to what they have to say. Uh, some, of the, some of the ideas and notions they have freak me out, but I got to believe some of the um, proclivities I have probably um, freak them out. We're, we're in a very chaotic political period, and I think the reason, and I've tried to explain this, I think for chaos to exist, the establishment, the ruling class, I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm not talking about liberal versus conservative. I'm talking about those that control the narrative, those that decide what the priorities are. When they begin losing the moral authority, you, you begin to see, okay, Josh has this opinion. Rev, that's his opinion. I have an opinion, but but I don't get to express myself because, man, I don't want to be on extreme. I don't want to, you know, should we spend any money in Ukraine? Well, I mean, we historically have done that. Everybody says we should, and I'm a Republican, and I voted for Reagan, and my dad loved Reagan, and, you know, the Bushes were okay. And, I mean, that's just kind of the way we've always rolled. I, I don't want to cause trouble, so I'll just kind of go along and, and that's what we've always done, and we got to stop Putin. Putin's evil. The you know he's trying to get the band back together. There, there's a fair debate to be had about that. I think that's a very important debate for Americans to have. But once the ruling class appears to be misleading, and by that I'm talking about, and I still go back to decentralization of media. I mean, and ask Barack Obama what keeps him up at night, and he basically said that. I mean, he basically said, well, I mean, the proliferation of media, decentralization of the media, Twitter now. I mean, Vladimir Putin sat down with Tucker Carlson, and I think the last I looked, it's over 150 billion, excuse me, million impressions and about 75 or 80 million views. I mean, you know, a Sunday morning, Meet the Press had about 2 million. You know, Shannon Bream or whatever her name is, somebody that does the show on Fox now, about two million. But that's uh, you got about five million people watching Sunday morning shows. You had about eighty million watch Vladimir Putin be interviewed by Tucker Carlson. You tell me what moves the meter. But I think decentralizing the media led to a world where some people with contrary and counter opinions feel a little bit less abnormal than they did, and that's a powerful force once unleashed. And I think that's where we are. Um, and that's not partisanship. That's not about liberal and conservative. That's basically, okay, a group of people have controlled the narratives and amassed enormous amounts of power, and they feel threatened. I mean, they genuinely feel like they're losing control. I mean, that's the great battle we're in today. Take a break. Back in a minute. I know we got a caller. Sit tight. We'll get to you as soon as we pay some bills. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the I would love to make everything about liberal and conservative. I mean, I really would. I'd love to tell you that every conservative principle and idea are good, every liberal principle and idea are bad, but I don't believe that's the debate in America today. I think the debate in America today is the powerful people, both liberal and, and, um, and conservative, both Democrat and Republican, have amassed an unfair amount of power and influence. And the American people at some point in time, they've always suspected they're getting jobbed. They always have gotten jobbed. But along comes the most unlikely candidate in the history of mankind, 
to resonate with that audience. You're talking about a billionaire business guy who lives in a luxurious Manhattan apartment who graduated from UPenn and the Wharton School of Finance. I mean, that's not the guy you would expect to resonate with an audience of Americans who believe the world has passed them by. That, that, that is the political exercise we're watching play out right before our very eyes, and it's unbelievably powerful. I've never argued, Rev, that populism is a sustaining political philosophy, but you can't deny its energy. You can't escape the thrust and power it can impose on a country if it permeates. And, and, and we are we're at one of those moments in American history that we'll reflect upon and say, how did we get there? Now, now I'd love to say, hey, I know exactly what the next five years looks like, what the next 10 years look like. I don't. I don't have a clue what the next 10 years look like. I know what I want it to look like. I mean, I want it to be Tucker Carlson and J.D. Vance having these very intellectual conversations about America first as a sustaining political philosophy. But, but for me to say, hey, I know how this thing works out, I don't know. I don't have any idea when, when do how you, this thing eventually works out. When do you think the last time that there was a genuine, you know, just the government, the debate between liberal and conservative ideas that was genuine, honest, they both come from honest places, and both somewhat had the public's interest in mind? I think there's still an attempt to do that, but it's clouded by these forces that have so much at risk. I, I'll, I'll ask a hypothetical. What would Ross Perot's campaign have been like if he lived in an era of decentralized media. I mean, that, I think of that at times, because Perot would have been ahead of the game, so to speak. He was Trump before Trump came along. True, without Twitter. But there was a controlling of the narrative. Right. I mean, Perot was a quirky, weird dude. You know how those weird rich cats are. We don't want him near the levers of power. And we're had to buy half-hour blocks of sure, television had, to but, get a message and, and that's the only way. He had enough money to do that. But he had to bow at the knee of CBS or ABC or NBC. It would be so interesting to me to hypothetically, here's the flight simulator, play out the Perot campaign in a world of Twitter. I mean, if that, if that he would had be, 80 million followers. Yeah, yeah but that, that, that would be crazy. He was not the bombastic personality, but he was... Interesting. But, but he, was, he, he understood the issues. One of the greatest quotes of this century, or the last century, was, you know, that sucking sound you hear will be all the jobs leaving as soon as they sign NAFTA into law. And Bush and Clinton looked at him like, He's right, but we can't admit that because our puppet masters won't allow it. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Hello. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, every now and then, Ken, you, you give a glimpse of your personal opinion, and uh, I'm, I'm not trying to attack you, but I just, I just wanted to dig into this a little bit. You talked about um, watching a guy eat fries. You need to swear me in first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. You, you, you won't recall. Um, uh, so, the, um, good one. The you said that um, the Obama exchange doesn't ask you about your medical history. It doesn't ask you about your uh, uh, cholesterol level, you know, body mass index. Doesn't ask any of those. When you got your job and you signed up for insurance, if you did at Community Broadcasting, did they ask you those questions? I don't have insurance here. Um, okay, but if you did. Do you think they would have asked you? That? I, I don't know. I mean, I can't speculate. The, the Rev answer can, is no. Well, I mean, Rev can answer that. I don't think they do. Sure, go ahead. I think. Rev, did they? Yeah. I think they, they no. looked at 
changing insurances a few years ago, and there were some health-related questions. A reward-based model. I mean, a, an actual they, they were trying to get a, healthcare model. Get a group quote at that point, yeah. I think. Right. And, and so, but typically the answer is no, they don't. Now, if you're signing up for life insurance, for sure they ask those questions, right? They do. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that goes to it. But you talked about, like, that guy is going to be my problem when he ate that fried chicken as you were sitting down at Polly four, four pieces of fried chicken, Jeff. I didn't say eight pieces. Right. Four, four <laughs> pieces. Uh, right. Uh, down to Polly's Island, right? That's right. And you were saying, that guy, I'm going to be paying for that guy. Now, am I, I wrong? Where you live in. Well, I, I'm just I, I'm just pointing out you're not wrong because we all we live in a society where we we've paid for the unfortunate health care forever. Correct. The unfortunate. The guy eating the four pieces of fried chicken is not unfortunate. He's making a conscious I, I decision. Right. So the conscious decision. You were in Polly's Island, right? Correct. You love going down there. You talk about it. Love it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't make the math I'm work to move down there. Okay, but you do you have a house down there? I do. Uh, do you have federal flood insurance? I do. Who subsidizes that? The taxpayer. Okay, so where so somebody who lives in you know Sherrill County pays for your federal flood insurance? Correct. Okay, I've railed against that from time to time, but we do that early yeah. in the morning. Right. You have a boat? I do not. But if you did, you'd go on the intercoastal waterway. I, I, I don't know where. I don't have a boat. Right. But if you did, and I'm sure you've been on a boat in the intercoastal waterway, and it's very nice, isn't it? I don't have a boat. Okay. you ever go to Merle's Inlet and hang out on the waterfront there? I do. Okay. Who pays for that waterway? Um, I think the businesses got together and decided they needed an increase in revenue they committed X number of dollars to a study. The study was done by the Army Corps of Engineers. They asked and requested to have something done. They got about 75% of what they wanted to get done. And there's kind of a collective. All the businesses down there get together and put money in a kitty. And that kitty built and maintains the marsh walk. It wouldn't surprise you the fact that the Intercoastal Waterway, by law, is maintained by the federal government? Oh, but it should be. Right. Well, I mean, it, it served a purpose during World War II when the German subs, this is when this came in, uh, in into being. But that the the inter, intercoastal waterway system of the United States, beach tree nourishment. But, but Jeff, all you, that is but, but I understand funded. what you're trying to do, but, but you're basically saying, I mean, the, the beginning of your argument, the genesis of your argument is that I shouldn't care that they don't ask me how healthy I am when I buy health insurance but rather how much money I make because we're kind of all in this thing together and the government does some things and they don't do other things and some things I like what they do and some things some I don't. Some people get benefits, some don't. I, I, I totally accept that. So uh, just for your listeners, just to, to clarify, they don't ask you uh, about your medical, but they don't ask you that in the private sector either when you sign up for insurance through your employer. But they should. Okay, That's my don't. point. They should. And, and should that be disqualifying? What do you mean by disqualifying? Should it be disqualifying for you to receive insurance? If you have no, no, I think I think bad drivers pay more for auto insurance. Homes along uh, certain dangerous places play higher premiums. The government decided to subsidize some of the um, 
and, and FEMA, I think the federal, the FEMA, the plan, uh, the FEMA, the flood insurance program is administered via FEMA. Um, but, but I'm not, I mean, I would rather see our country go back to a meritocracy where the person that decides to eat four pieces of fried chicken pays more for health insurance. The person who takes better care of themselves are rewarded for taking better care of themselves. Let me ask you a question. What would the sure. cost of wiper blades on your luxurious pickup, I'm sure you drive, what would the cost of wiper blades be if auto insurance paid for it? Oh, it'd be outrageous. And, and that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. I would rather the market reward people who do what they're supposed to and incentivize people to do better and punish or penalize people, in this case, who eat four pieces of fried chicken for their third trip to the buffet. And to me, that's just the American way. I'll accept a degree of government. I never said that I want to drown government in the bathtub. I mean, I'll tell you this. I would rather see insurance companies decide what the risk is without government subsidy and a homeowner in Pauley's Island, Merle's Inlet, Charleston, Buford along the coast make a determination as to what they can afford. I mean, can, you know, I'm sorry, continue. Have you ever heard of a camera zone? Sure. There, there are zones in the, the coastline that are not eligible for federal flood insurance if they were not incorporated before, before a certain time. And they probably shouldn't be, Jeff, in all honesty. Right, right. But they do, you know, they still develop that land. But, but, you isn't, get insurance. but isn't that kind of the argument, the, what is the role of government? And if government starts taking on these certain obligations, yeah, the next thing you know, it's the old slippery slope that all of a sudden you got a guy eating four pieces of fried chicken and somebody trying to take care of themselves and the person trying to take care of themselves is basically subsidizing the guy not trying. I mean, isn't that kind of the argument most conservatives make? You got to be careful letting government in the door because the next thing you know, they'll take over the room. But but you, you discount like, so do you want the government to regulate how much sugar can be in soda? No, not at all. Okay. I want the government to incentivize people who decide not to drink all that sugar and punish those who do. Okay. So, and I don't think punish is the right word. I mean, I, you know, well, it is. I mean, you could say what you could call it whatever you want, but hold responsible, I think is a better way. Hold responsible the decisions that we make as human beings. Before um, Obamacare, you know that pre existing conditions, if you lost your medical insurance after you developed a condition, when you went to shop for insurance after that, you had what was called a pre-existing condition, and you could buy insurance, but you couldn't afford it. But you should. Really but, but, but would would you agree with me that asking an insurance company to cover pre-existing condition is not really insurance; it's assuming a liability. Uh, so we live in a society. What should that person do? Just well, I mean, I, I, fair enough. Them? I think that is a very fair debate. I, I do believe that people who have been dealt unfortunate hands regarding their health deserve some special consideration. I just don't know what that looks like. Yeah, and and I wasn't trying to call you out, but I do want to point out that there are things that you, you saw the guy with the fried chicken that triggered you, but there are tons of people in this country that have no idea what some people are fortunate enough to receive as benefits from the government. And some people will never never experience that subsidized insurance for their beach house. Well, and, and I'm willing to admit my inconsistencies. You've listened long enough. I mean, I've never yeah. said, hey, man, 
I mean, I, I, you know, I'm as pure as this. As, no, I mean, I'm not as pure as snow. I'm, I'm as hypocritical and complicated and conflicted as the next guy is. But, but I do believe that less government is better. I believe the American yeah. economy performs better. I think the American experience is better. I think we all get a fairer shot at what we deserve with less government, not more. Philosophically, well, that's where I come from. That, that's true. But now we're in a situation where you, as you talk about Pfizer and these large corporations, they don't care about you or the United States. See, and we agree and so there. We, we to, agree to there. To allow the government to step back and have a laissez-faire attitude towards business doesn't work anymore because they don't care about America. Fair enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937. Hear the music playing. That means Josh is ready for a break, whether I am or not. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I think the conversation Jeff and I have more times than not, is an illustration, the mind of someone who says, okay, these problems and equities, uh, unequalness of society, the government has to intervene to make the world fair. And and I, 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 that concerns me. That, that just, it worries me to no end because I think once you let government in the door, they take over the room and you become subservient to government. And in today's modern government, it's punitive. That's the biggest concern I have. It's punitive. The government, you let them in the room, they come in the room, they become a dominant force in the room, and all of a sudden they tell everybody, it's not good enough to be in control of the room. We've got to get everybody else out of the room. I mean, we want to be the only controlling arbiter of all these things that happen. I accept that there are inconsistencies with my points of view. I am no different than you, Josh. You know what I do every day? I wake up thinking about me and my family unapologetically. I think about me, my family, my plot, my struggles, my issues, my successes, my failures. And then I start thinking about in general, you know, Reb and Josh and these other friends and these other folks and these, these other issues. But the first thing I think about when my feet hit the ground in the morning are me and my people and my walk and my complicated existence. And then eventually I get to some of the others. We're, we're all that. There are very few truly altruistic people in this world. And God bless them. I mean, they're better people than I am. I mean, I am envious. If you ask who I'm envious of, I am envious of human beings who have the general capacity to put others first. They're few and far between. But there are genuinely people out there who have whatever in them that allows them to say, okay, I want this. I need this. But but this is more important. I think at times we do that, but more times than not, we put our interest first. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence, good morning. Hey, guys. I called originally to make a comment uh, to explain, I think, why uh, Trump is the unicorn. But listening to you and Jeff debate something, I thought I would share a story with you. I think health insurance, like a lot of things, like Social Security, like global defense, all started out with good intentions, but I think they suffer the abuse of human nature and people trying to exploit and take advantage of it. For example, 40 years ago, my first job in New York City, I had a corporate health insurance plan. I didn't pay a penny for it. There were no deductibles. There were no co-pays. There were no uh, minimums or maximums. Uh, I actually 
was married at the time, and they allowed us, both of our insurance companies, to uh, file claims for um, uh, issues. So my wife actually got a cosmetic elective procedure kind of uh, covered through some doctor's note that was a little bit sketchy, and it was a $10,000 procedure. I got $8,000 from my insurance. She got 8000 for hers. We made 6000 bucks from the insurance company from, from an elective procedure. Then they got coordination of benefits. They started getting smart, and they said, well, we're only going to pay you 50% each, and so you're just going to break even. From that point, 40 years down the road, I pay $500 a month for insurance. I have co-pays. I have deductibles. I have $5,000 maximums, and I think the insurance industry got broken because an awful lot of folks, lawyers, doctors, people like me who are as happy to pocket the $8,000, kind of abused the situation, and now it's at the point where it's in trouble, just like a lot of our other well-intended policies. And that's why I think Karl Marx says that after 500 years, democracies and capitalistic societies tend to crush under their own weight of human nature and greed. But the thing I wanted to say about Trump is, to me, Donald Trump seems like the robber barons of old, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers. I think he wants to leave a legacy of doing good because how blessed he really was. I think um, Biden and his, and his Democrats uh, are more like the mafia. Um, being an Italian, I know that comparing Biden to uh, Al Capone kind of uh, diminishes the image of Al Capone. But, but I see the Democrats as kind of the mafia, and I see Trump as kind of the modern-day David uh, and, and John D. Rockefeller. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. I believe that the Bidens look at government as this big, huge ATM machine, and they just disperse money and favors and power and influence. And, I mean, all these other folks are getting their piece. Why don't I deserve um, to get my share um, when it comes to Trump and, you know, introspectively, I mean, I don't have any idea what floats his boat. Um, he reminds me of a lot of people I grew up around. I didn't say with. My father's friends, they were largely successful business people who did a lot of crazy things, but a lot of good. I mean, I remember as a young person watching my dad and his friends, and they all ran businesses, and they all lived hard and played hard. And they went from flush to broke, back to flush, back to broke. I mean, it was, you know, hearing those those stories. And you couldn't ever figure out how much bad they were and how much good they were. I mean, that they were complicated. <laughs> they, you know, they win, they lose, they do things that you're like, wow. I mean, that, that's as great a gesture as I've ever seen a human being make. And then the next day, there's something, wow, that's not. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll continue that. Uh, enjoy your day.